Then followed one of the most remarkable and alarming incidents of the whole case. There was a sudden, violent shaking sound, and it was immediately followed by total panic. Oh, Lord, cried Mrs. Harper. That does it. All that power. I'm getting out. From my position on the box room bed, I could look straight across the landing through the open front bedroom door. As I did so, I saw something red and fluffy pass over the top of the door from right to left. Where's Mr. Playfair? One of the girls called. It was sometimes difficult to tell Rose's and Janet's voices apart. He was already on his feet and standing in the doorway of their bedroom, wondering if he was seeing things. The entire iron frame of the gas fire had been wrenched out of the wall and was standing at an angle on the floor, still attached to the half-inch diameter brass pipe that connected it to the mains. The pipe had been bent at an angle of 32 degrees. This was a major demolition job, for the thing was cemented into the brickwork, and it was out of the question to suggest that one of the children could have wrenched it out. When we finally dismantled the whole apparatus, we found it was quite a job even to move. It must have weighed at least 50 pounds. Oddly enough, my reaction at the time was one of relief. We had found something the poltergeist could not do, it seemed. My ghoulies and my moth people, welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Jay, and I'm joined today by the fraudulent duo, Nick and Rory. Hey now. Been a long time since I've called that. <laughs> you taking me to court? No. Oh, that's good. I will. For what? Because just fraud. like everyone in this book accusing the Harpers of fraud, I have no evidence of that. I got lots. You have lots of evidence of Nick committing fraud. Oh, yes. That is a surprise to me. I <laughs> knew he wasn't actually that tall. <laughs> How can I fraud my... You know what? Never mind. Let's go. On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. How's it going? Hello. Pretty good. Pretty good. You guys uh, fake any uh, two and a half year poltergeist cases lately? You know, um, I was thinking about it, but then I realized I don't have the time, resources, or talent to do that. So I've been on this, um, uh, we'll call it this escapade for the last uh, four or five years now where I've been faking a haunting. Yeah. Really? Really? Yeah. yeah that's what I do in my spare time. What spare time? See. I've been faking a Bigfoot epidemic. What I do is I drive out to small towns all around the county, and I wait till I see, like, children out walking alone, and then I put on a gorilla costume, and then I beat the shit out of them. That's you? Yeah. 
I have been covering my car in tinfoil and a bunch of like little stick-on lights, and I've been walking around, and I've been driving around with a chloroform rag and uh, just abducting people and using hypnotic suggestion to make them think they were taken to other planets. I just can't, I can't believe I'm surrounded by so many fakes and the northern Michigan ape man. My God, we're the problem. <laughs> well, you found us out, Reddit. Turns out we are liars. <laughs> you know who's not liars? Probably the Harpers. Yeah, so what book are we reading today, Jay? We are reading This House is Haunted by Guy Leon Playfair. It is a very, very... My God, so very thorough investigation into the famous Enfield poltergeist case. And uh, yeah, uh, Playfair spends so much time um, debunking the debunkment of Enfield that I didn't even bother putting in a discussion question about whether or not this was real because um, I think kind of the entire point of the book is that he's like, this was real, this happened. Yeah, and I mean... Yeah, I think it was necessary for the time he was writing and the subject matter he was writing about. Uh, he beats that horse past death. He beats that horse into horse jelly. Yeah. Uh, basically, I mean, you, he looks at the debunking arguments from every single possible avenue and systematically moves through them. Uh, basically, I mean, what, here's the thing, though, is ultimately most of his counterpoints come down to you have to trust his word. Yeah. Because yeah. a lot of it is that couldn't have happened because I saw it happen. Uh, and, I mean, that probably is going to be dubious for the more skeptical crowd uh, because, again, we go back to the easy answer. Uh, well, they're just lying. Well, yep. And then there's so many, um, you know, I guess more famous people that came, that went there, spent very little time in the house and came out and said, nope, it's all a fake. You know, yep. they didn't either didn't do anything. In some cases, they just straight up lied, uh, you know, saying that they talked to them and or talked to like the kids or something. And turns out they didn't, but yeah. they were saying that the kids told them that they made it up like shit like that. Yeah. yeah no, there was an awful lot of lying. And uh, shockingly, none of it had to do with the actual activity. It, yeah. All the lies were about debunking the activity. Yeah. And it's not even like they were good lies. They were easily provable to be lies. Yeah, yep. We even got to see the absolute failure, in my opinion, of the uh, SPR or whatever. Oh, yeah. No, this... Honestly, I, I understand, after reading this book, why the Society for Psychical Research isn't really a big entity anymore. Like, you don't yeah. hear about them investigating cases anymore. Yeah, probably because uh, even when when they had people investigating cases, nobody that is a part of the SBR fucking believed their own members. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No, but uh, yeah, on the whole, I really enjoyed the book. Uh, like yeah. Twin Telepathy, it was exceedingly thorough. Mm. I think this one even more so uh, because... I, I, you know, I, I definitely got the impression that Playfair expected people to not believe this when reading it. Yeah. And because of that, he uh, goes into everything with such exhausting detail. Yeah. Uh, which, because poltergeist cases tend to be repetitive, made the book at times repetitive. But on the whole, I'd say I enjoyed it. I, uh, he, his writing style is very approachable and engaging. And I, you know, his grammar didn't make me want to hang myself. So that's something. Yeah. That, uh, that, I can't say that about every book we've read. True that, and Mr. Jan Cameron. Yeah, and Janet Harper is an adorable little cupcake of a girl. <laughs> yeah, 
complicated little girl. I have, I'm sure we're going to get into it. I have complex feelings about Janet Harper. I will defend Janet Harper. Here's the thing. I'm not going to attack Janet Harper. I just think that it is a very nuanced situation and she didn't help. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I would agree. She definitely didn't help, but she's 12. It, oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Exactly. I'm not saying she should be condemned for it. <laughs> she is a child. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean she didn't complicate things a little. Yeah, she complicated things by being 12. That's what 12-year-olds do. They complicate things by standing there and being 12. Well, perhaps she should have tried to be 14. <laughs> what, she just should have thought about it really hard? You can't do that? B-50 right now. I can't do it right now. There's a whole rigmarole involved. We'll pause the recording. A, a Go do it. Rigmarole? Yeah, that's first... your excuse. There's a whole rigmarole. <laughs> I got a nap for a couple hours. I got to hike my pants up to the point that it injures my groin. Well, that won't happen. Okay, okay. How the fuck was Janet Harper supposed to go through a rigmarole when every time she tried to go get a goddamn sandwich from the kitchen, an invisible ghost attacked her with knives? It sounded like she rigmaroled her way out of bed eight to nine times a night. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm fucking saying. The girl was getting no goddamn sleep. Uh, uh, I, Jesus I, Christ. I deeply, deeply enjoy um, getting those reactions out of you. Let's get started. Yeah, fucking let's. The year is 1977. We find ourselves in a modest but comfortable council house in Enfield, London. It is late at night, and two children, Janet Harper, aged 11, and her brother Jimmy, aged 10, are experiencing something quite odd. Since last night, the previous night, their beds had been moving up and down, and now... They insist past their mother's skepticism. They're hearing an odd shuffling sound in their shared bedroom. Tired, Peggy Harper, divorced mother of four, grabbed the chair the children were indicating and dragged it somewhere else. She switched off the light in her children's room, only to begin hearing the shuffling noise herself. She described it as slippered feet moving across the floor. Confused, she reached to put the light on again and was interrupted by several loud knocks on the nearby wall. She assumed it was the neighbors. And then the chest of drawers moved. The large piece of furniture slid across the floor towards the doorway. Increasingly alarmed, Mrs. Harper shoved it back and it moved again, as if determined to block the door. This time, when she tried to shove it away, desperately hoping the floors were merely sagging, she found she couldn't. Something she couldn't see was at the other end of the chest of drawers, pushing back, resisting her. Frightened, Mrs. Harper rounded up all four of her kids, Pete, the eldest at 14, Rose, the middle at 13, and fled next door to their neighbors, the Nottinghams. These people's names are also Peggy, Vic, and Gary. This tight-knit family of three had been great friends to the Harpers, and Vic, the father, agreed to go next door to check for prowlers or overly ambitious mice. The house, upon inspection, was empty. But while they were over there, Vic Nottingham heard the same knocks that Mrs. Harper had and reported that they seemed to be following him from room to room. Several checks outside revealed no hoodlum children or confused drunks producing the odd bangs, and Mrs. Harper finally just ca called the police. <laughs> police Constable Carolyn Heaps and an unnamed male partner arrived at the scene, whereupon they themselves witnessed an odd occurrence. A chair, untouched by any resident and in full view of the entire exhausted ensemble, 
began to violently wobble back and forth as though occupied by a fidgety child. The chair then mimicked its cousin upstairs and slid across the floor of its own volition. The cops left because what are they going to do? Arrest the chair? Issue a cease and desist to an unnamed phantom? Beat the wall with billy clubs and scream, Do you hear that? I can make knocking noises too! They promise to check in on the family, but again, unless they have jurisdiction over disincarnate spirits, that was a bit of a cold comfort. For the next three days, the family and their oft-visiting neighbors were hailed with Lego bricks and marbles, which would shoot across the room at fantastic speeds. These objects seemed to appear out of nowhere, and after coming to a stop, were found to be hot to the touch. With the police unable to help, Mrs. Harper called the Daily Mirror, because you know what always quiets down an odd, tense family affair? Involving the press. At the time, Mrs. Harper had no way of knowing that most paranormal occurrences were being chased out of the mirror with rocks and sticks. Luckily for her, her call was answered by a deputy night editor who either didn't know that or didn't give a shit. Said night editor sent a reporter, Douglas Bentz, and a photographer, Graham Morris, to capture and report on the activity. The two men spent an entire Sunday with the family, hearing the tale up to that point summarized. During the bulk of the visit, nothing of note happened. As soon as they tried to leave, however, around 2 a.m., the Lego Blitz began anew with tiny bricks rocketing around the house. Called back inside by Peggy Harper's father, the men watched in amazement. Morris even caught a brick over the eye, leaving him with a bruise that lasted for several days. He took hundreds of photos. One particularly good one shows Lego bricks whizzing by while all of the family's hands are visible. None of them could have done the throwing. Back at the mirror, senior reporter George Fallows caught wind of the case and got involved as well. He met with Peggy Harper and told her that he felt she had a poltergeist on her hands. That said poltergeist likely came from Rose, seeing as she was a girl entering her teen years, and finally, that she should get in touch with the Society for Psychical Research. Alma Fielding, distantly across time and space, is going, No, don't do it! No! They'll hypnotize you a bunch and give you DID! No! For a second, I thought you said DMT, and I was like, I don't not remember that from the Alma Fielding case. They should not have given Alma Fielding DMT. That probably would have made shit a lot worse. Or better. I feel like it would have been worse. <laughs> At first, Peggy panicked. She thought he was referring to a psychiatric outfit, like the one that had sent her son Pete off to a special school with no explanation why. But when the confusion was cleared up, she dared to reach out. And when she did, she found Maurice Gross. In Chapter 2, we ourselves meet Maurice. Successful inventor and newly minted SPR investigator, Maurice was frustrated with what he viewed as the society's general decline. By 1977, many of its members had little to no interest in hunting spooks and were instead concerned only with academic debates and with exposing frauds. But Gross wasn't content with that. Not after his own daughter Janet had died and left a trail of questions in her wake. The previous August, Janet had been on the back of a motorcycle, driven by a medical student named Adam Speller. Speller crashed and died at the scene. Janet was alive when she was brought to the hospital, but did not survive long after that. At 4.20 a.m., she moved to the next phase of her existence, with her parents by her bedside. 
and the strangeness of it all had started the previous day. Her mother fell ill mysteriously and recovered just as mysteriously. Her father, by sheer coincidence, was asked by his synagogue to sit in mourning for the holy day of 9th of Av. Sometime after her death, Janet's brother Richard received a birthday card from her that she'd posted prior to the accident. The card made a joke about head injuries, showing a girl with a bandaged skull. Janet's aunt, on the night of her death, awoke from an odd nightmare. While rushing to the hospital to say goodbye, she noticed a broken clock in her house had started to run for the first time in a year. The clock eventually stopped again, showing the hour 420. Confused and heartbroken, Maurice Gross asked his daughter's spirit for a sign, a communication for a single drop of rain in the drought that was besetting the country. The next day, on a small roof outside his window, he found a perfect puddle of water while the rest of the house and street were dry. And then the candles, the special candles that Janet's family were meant to light together to mourn her, they kept going out for, like, no reason. Overwhelmed and in unspeakable emotional pain, Maurice Gross joined the SPR, hoping to investigate these occurrences and maybe, just maybe, find a way to speak to his daughter again. And, some short time afterwards, he found himself pulling up outside the Harper's house, where a different Janet was sorely in need of help. In Chapter 3, we learn that Gross was very quickly convinced of the case's reality. The family's genuine fear was enough for him, and he did his best to soothe it. Time and again, he assured them that they were far from the first family with a noisy ghost, and that there was nothing to actually be afraid of. Nobody was going to die from flying marbles and wandering chairs. Next, he urged Peggy Harper to participate in the investigation, to note events and timestamps and collect evidence. For the first three days of his investigation, nothing of particular importance happened. And then, at 1.15 a.m., a large crash sounded from Janet's room. Gross, accompanied by three men from the Daily Mirror, discovered Janet's chair had been hurled across the room and now lay still and overturned. An hour later, repeat performance, and Janet Harper was found to not just be asleep, but unresponsive and difficult to wake. Gross attended an SPR conference on Poltergeist, where he brought up the Harper case. He was dismissed, told these occurrences were likely hallucinatory, and received only one volunteer a dental surgeon who will make very sporadic appearances throughout this book and no appearances in this summary. Sitting next to Gross at the conference, however, was our author, Guy Leon Playfair. Playfair, having recently completed an epic tome that required two years of research and fresh off his time in Brazil, embedded with the Brazilian Institute for Psychobiophysical Research, had thoroughly burnt himself out on poltergeists. He knew that Gross was staring down the barrel of sleepless nights and zero answers. You can almost hear Playfair's pleas through the pages. No, no more poltergeist. No, I'm so tired. Let me talk about sunspots. But sunspots are dumb, so that's not going to last long. By the time that the Daily Mirror ran their front page story on the Harper case, Gross had pinpointed Janet as the likely epicenter, not Rose, and encouraged Peggy Harper to keep an eye on her. The girl might play tricks, as children often start to do in these cases, or the poltergeist might influence her into doing so. 
Peggy Harper kept beautiful notes and recorded everything from doors banging open and shut on their own to chairs balancing on window ledges. Gross also observed that, despite it being physically improbable, the flying marbles never bounced off what they struck, merely came to a stop, as if placed by an invisible hand. After the Mirror article ran, Gross, Peggy Harper, and Peggy Nottingham all appeared together on a BBC television broadcast, where they spent hours discussing the case and fielding viewer questions. That same night, the Harpers hosted an overnight guest, Rosalind Morris, a BBC Radio 4 correspondent who, during her stay there, witnessed a chair fly across the room and Janet's bed rise from the floor. Without bothering to get a wink of sleep, Morris returned to her office and basically went, something really not chill happened last night and everybody who has ears needs to fucking hear about it. (laughs) Playfair heard this broadcast and, as he did so... His friend Andrade appeared in the sky like Mufasa and told him to stop whining about being tired and go deal with the goddamn flying furniture. Playfair did that, being all, eh, it's a poltergeist. My vacay can wait like three weeks before this dies down. It would go on for two fucking years. (laughs) And that brings us to discussion question number one. So, having finished this book, and at this point in this summary, giving you a bit of a refresher, what are some of the key differences and similarities that you were observing between this and other poltergeist slash haunting cases that we've studied? Um, I can try that. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, you're going to see a ton of overlap because the Enfield poltergeist case, at least to me, seemed to be... Uh, almost emblematic of the entirety of the phenomenon. Everything that happens in a poltergeist case was happening there, and not just once or twice. That was part of the ongoing uh, parade of phenomenon that beset this family for close to two years. Uh, I I did see some of the stuff that we talked about in Alma Fielding, although the Alma Fielding book was, at least to me, it was less focused on the phenomenon and more focused on the people... uh, the, the personalities involved in it, whereas yeah. this book is much more focused on the actual phenomenon. The one thing that obviously sticks out as being a big, uh, big element that is not common in a lot of other poltergeist cases, at least I haven't heard of many outside of like Jeff, the talking mongoose is the voice. Uh, so this is something I'm assuming we're going to get to later in the summary, but uh, Janet begins I, we don't know if it's Janet for sure, but there seems to be a disembodied voice that starts emanating in the house, uh, cursing at people, speaking to people. And that voice had, at least to me, it seemed to have an awful lot of agency compared to a lot of the other poltergeist cases we've seen where it, the phenomenon seemed more reactionary it seemed, or random in a way. Whereas, I mean, granted, there was seemingly random phenomenon here. I don't know how many times the kitchen table just decided to leap up and flip over, but there, I, that, that, that lingered with me. I, I got the distinct feeling that in the Enfield case, there was more of a personality at play, and that could just say a lot about if poltergeists are manifestations of latent psychic ability, like some people believe, then I could see that being a, uh, indicator of the kind of person Janet was. Maybe she had a very large imagination and could create this sort of alternate persona that became the poltergeist. 
But I could also see the arguments go the other way, that there was something else going on here, that this wasn't just a psi phenomenon happening. And actually, that was my biggest takeaway from the phenomenon reported at Enfield, was that, you know, we, we, we often, because we like certainty, like pathologically, that's what humans like, uh, it, even on this show, you kind of reach a point where it's like, yeah, poltergeists, they're, it's latent psychic energy. And this book made allowed me to kind of pause and go, well, even that's not known. Nothing here is known. That's merely an idea. That's and, what our last discussion question is going to be about is how this is how this book kind of is helping shape our views on that. Yeah, well, so I won't go into it too much here, but uh, yeah, no, I, I think that this, this was a, <laughs> I don't want to say stereotypical, but, but it is. This is a stereotypical textbook poltergeist case it's just so much bigger and more vibrant uh than most other cases we see which uh, as they bring up in the book usually ends after a couple of weeks or months yeah so i was gonna say like honestly in terms of books that we've covered this one is the most uh for the, the in the, so like from based on everything that we know from outside of the books right you know from different things that we've listened to tv shows that we've watched whatever this is the most stereotypical poltergeist case that we've covered uh because thinking about like alma fielding she was like uh she was older yeah. you know and everybody I, everybody in quotations says that poltergeist typically happen around a child who is approaching puberty. Um, I have problems with that, but um, that's neither here nor there, nor the point, I guess. But I would say that this is probably the first time that we've covered uh, a, a, a haunting or a poltergeist case that is so textbook. You know, because uh, even looking at the Demon of Brownsville Road, that wasn't textbook by any means. No, that one was fucking weird. Yeah, and Alma Fielding was weird. The Screaming House, I guess, maybe a little bit textbook, uh, if any of that was even true. Uh, yeah, Union Screaming House is is one of those difficult ones because we have so much evidence that, unlike this case, we have so much evidence that the Union Screaming House case was largely bullshit. Yeah. That it's a little difficult to extrapolate any information or conclusions from it. Yeah. Um, what I will, I guess one of the other big, I guess one of the other key differences here that uh, it definitely played a part in the, the, the book and the case in general would be the publicity that this got while it was actively happening. Yeah. Because Alma Fielding didn't get this kind of publicity. The Demon of Brownsville Roadhouse didn't get this kind of publicity. The Screaming House, I'm sure he tried to get this kind of publicity. Well, I mean, also, it kinda, I, I was referencing this a little bit when I was saying how big the haunting was. This is the first time I, I've seen any kind of phenomenon that's reported to actively perform for people when they come. Yes, right. it was shy to a degree. It would like the voice wouldn't talk when some people were in the room. But the moment they were out of the room, it didn't care if they could still hear it as long as they weren't looking. And yeah, and even that wasn't always the case. It really seemed to be like a flip of a coin on whether or not you would, it, it, the the entity, the whatever, would respond on command or listen. Because there was, towards the end of the book, there's the whole conversation that w that was happening between the entity and the... Matthew Manning? Yeah, Matthew Manning. Thank you. Names and me, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly who I was thinking of because it's like it straight up said 
when it like because they told the voice basically it's like hey Matthew Manning is coming over and I don't think Playfair mentioned explaining to the voice who Matthew Manning was yeah but it basically just went oh oh I'll put a show on for him and like it performed great for Rosalind Morris it scared the fuck out of Rosalind Morris yeah yeah and and you don't see that a lot usually uh usually I would expect like a case like this for all right, Gross and Playfair, they spent months basically living in the house. Yeah. yeah. I would expect them to have seen stuff, but the amount of just extra people, uh, not and not just investigators, but neighbors, the police cops, officers, yeah. uh, people just passing by on the street, the number of people who saw something happening as it was happening, that was pretty remarkable. Yeah. yeah. I mean I the fact that the cops said that they that they saw something uh, immediately, you know, that's that's pretty that's pretty good because they are I, I feel like they're gonna be the ones that are gonna be the first ones to be like, nah, you guys are fucking pranking, you know. Yeah. But Carolyn Heaps was pretty adamant about like she was like, No, I was seeing a chair moving around. Yeah, and there was some pretty extravagant things that these people are saying happened, including seeing things like Janet levitating. Yeah. Yeah. Which is <laughs> you know, I, I guess that's part of my frustration with the book, and I'm sure we're going to talk about the debunking attempts later. Um, but it, is we had this wealth of witnesses seeing truly wild things. It's not something that you're going to see out of the corner of your eye and mistake for levitation. Really, she was right. jumping off the bed. No, a little girl just floated across the room. Yeah, two and, different people standing outside on the street saw that happen through a window and were like, that child was flying. Yeah, and the arrogance of so many members of the SPR oh, to come in for a oh, couple yeah. of hours and then and then just conclude, it's all a trick the children are playing. What, those people saw that? No, they didn't. They're liars or they were mistaken. It's like, that is, it's just, it's, it, it continues to boggle my mind. And we've talked about this on the show. The, uh, the problem of dogmatic skepticism in the paranormal. I, I was just stunned to see it coming out of the SPR. Because, you know, the SPR kind of ha- enjoys, at least to some degree, the still sort of legendary status in the books we read. It was yeah. one of the first pioneering groups to look at this seriously. And so you'd expect them to be a little more open-minded about it. But it turns out they weren't, I, I don't think, I don't think at least in the, what well, this was in the seventies, I don't think the SPR here was actually interested in anything, in anything that was going to be, I, I don't know, a little, uh, too real. Yeah. They, they wanted theories. They wanted to have conferences and talk, but they didn't want to see it. They wanted to be academics that just talked about this shit, didn't actually uh, have to encounter it themselves, which I think is, like, I mean, from one side of me, it's like, I get that. I don't nece- necessarily want to go investigate a, uh, an active poltergeist that's going to start throwing shit at me, but if somebody asked me to, I feel like I would go, and I would go with an open mind. I wouldn't go to with the very obvious intention, like so many members of the SPR had, of going there to debunk it. Yeah. Like, yep. will I go there with the intent to try and find mundane reasons for what's happening? Yes, of course. I, it, we will be talking about this in the summary, but listeners, I need to brace yourself for the fact that at one point in the events of this book, a grown-ass adult man basically clandestinely tricks Rose into a false confession and holds this up as irrefutable proof that the girls faked it. And uh, 
yeah, Rose during the point of that conversation, I believe, was uh, had just turned 15. So this grown ass man basically gaslit a traumatized 15 year old girl into saying she was lying about something she wasn't lying about. Well, and I mean, also, right after doing that, he went over to the neighbor's house, who was another big uh, witness to this, yep. and basically just tried to bully her into betraying her neighbors. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, 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 at that point, the, at that point, in my opinion, the behavior of the SPR went from uh, went from simple incompetence to an active, malicious, intentional campaign to make sure that this that any press covering this ended. Yeah. yeah. And I don't, I, for the life of me, I went through the whole book page to page. I still don't understand why they felt the need to go that far. They were already ignoring the case, but that wasn't enough. No, we got to bully a 15-year-old. And I, yeah, like, like you said, I just, I don't understand why, of all things, this, this one, because it's not like the Harpers were going out flaunting this they were just asking for help yeah Yeah. they didn't want they they never made one of the things that um didn't make it into the summary but that came up at one of the spr conferences is that you know the harpers were getting labeled as frauds and i believe it was gross rather frostily pointed out it's like well the actual definition of fraud means you deliberately deceived other people in an attempt to make money and seeing as mrs harper is struggling to make ends meet and has never made a dime off of this ordeal i think we can safely stop using that specific word yeah and it's like that's that's one of the things that i point to with this one of it's like woody derenberger at least was making money Off of his questionable claims, the Harpers haven't really ever seen a fucking cent. Like, to this day, Janet Harper does not really talk to the press because of the shit that she went through with the SPR and the Daily Mirror and some of this other crap. She's still, like, she's still alive. She's still out there. I think she's given one interview in the last 20 years because she's sick of all of this. Yeah. And rightfully so. Yeah. I mean, I certainly would be. Yeah. Ready? Yep. All right. We move on to chapter four, where Playfair finally makes it to the house. In the pages of this book, he admits that he was still skeptical at this point, needing to see the activity for himself in order to be fully convinced of it. The incidents that happened in his presence were fairly minor at first, until he and Graham Morris, who was still involving himself, tried to rig up a fuck ton of cameras in Janet's room. Morris strung the cameras with wires so that their triggers would all fire from one button click. Except when he tested the apparatus, every single flash bulb failed to go off. He'd never seen anything like it in seven years of photography, and the next day the cameras were fine. Playfair stayed the night on September 19, 1977 by which point the flying objects and knocks and flipping chairs had gone from alarming to commonplace. During that night, more of the unsettling shuffling sound began, and a marble was dropped to the floor by Janet's bed, seemingly from nowhere. The next night, Playfair tied the leg of the bed to that of Janet's bedside chair, without telling her. The chair flipped over, snapping the wire. The poltergeist repeated its show with another chair— and Peggy Harper accurately guessed that it would shove the bed around next. The poltergeist spent the rest of the night showing off. 
It threw books and furniture and left a phantom hollow in Mrs. Harper's bed. It's here that Peggy Harper tells Playfair of a tragedy that took place on their street years earlier. A man suffocated his young daughter to death and then took his own life. Peggy Harper, having known him a bit, had some of his furniture in the house. She disposed of it after the activity began, but still worried it was the little girl's spirit causing the trouble. Maurice Gross, being a complete madman, started calling video equipment companies and asking for donated cameras. Please imagine that pitch, because the man didn't lie. The man was upfront about the whole thing. And it worked! In addition to several donated cameras, a team of amateur ghost hunters showed up to help as well. I would have given them cameras. <laughs> Are you kidding? If your, ca- your brand camera is the one that captures definitive proof of the supernatural, if there's even a chance that that's going to happen. Do it. That's amazing marketing. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's funny. <laughs> at first, the cameras continued to fail to work in Janet's room, and the malfunctions inside bewildered their operators. When they were finally up and running, the poltergeist got shy and refused to perform. I fucking hate this thing. So annoying. Playfair was about two drinks away from bugging the house, but eventually reached out to a medium instead. While they waited for the woman to return from holiday, shit proceeded to get wilder. In Chapter 5, for instance, we learned that the poltergeist was following the Harpers from place to place. Whenever they fled to Peggy's brother, his name is John, whenever they fled to his house, the activity would occur there as well. While not as severe, it was noticeable and observed by Peggy's brother, by her sister-in-law, and by her nieces and nephews. Next, the apparitions began. Gray-haired women and little girls and faceless shadows peeked from the windows or scuttled across doorways, making everybody jump but not doing much beyond that. And around mid-October, the tables began flipping over. The reason this is so significant, dear listener, is that these tables were quite heavy. So heavy, in fact, that Playfair and Gross could barely flip one together. So how exactly could tiny young Janet or tiny young Rose have done it? Anabolic steroids. The girls are taking steroids now. They're juicing. And they're getting these steroids from where? Uh, The drug dealer down the street. Thank you. Greasy Steve. And then Playfair got to see the table turn itself over with his very own eyes, and the weight of the table got drastically less important. I imagine that thoughts of the table's weight were, in fact, replaced with screaming. It was around then that Mrs. Harper mentioned that she tended to get a headache right before the activity began. Playfair was starting to suspect that Peggy had some latent precognition. He also suspected that the entity was trying to communicate via the knocking. The medium finally arrived. She will be called... Annie Shaw to protect her privacy, and she shared these thoughts about the knocking. However, she was adamant that no one was to attempt to communicate with the creature. She felt this would only encourage the activity. And that was the last thing any of them wanted to do, what with Janet going into trances and crying in her sleep the previous night. During these weird episodes, she was calling out Mummy repeatedly. Peggy Harper insisted that Janet never called her that, so it was odd and noticeable. On the day of Shaw's visit, she and her husband concurred with Gross that Janet was the likely epicenter, and they stated that she was leaking energy from her aura. 
entities such as the nasty creature called Gozer and Elemental called Elvi, which were um, indicated to be in the house by the Shaws, were feeding on this leaked energy, which needed to be stopped up with an auric healing session. Annie Shaw went on to tell the Harpers that their family strife was the root cause, and Peggy admitted that she'd been bottling up nasty feelings towards her ex-husband. The Shaws performed their auric healing on Janet and Peggy, and things were pretty quiet for the next three days. However, when a midterm trip to the seaside was arranged for the family, activity spiked again. It even started at Janet's school, where she felt something pulling on her arm. She also stated that she saw an apparition of an old man holding a hand over her mouth and nose, trying to suffocate her, and pools of water began appearing in the kitchen. Curious about this, Gross and Playfair tried to replicate the puddles. When pouring water from jugs, they observed splash and splatter, jagged edges of the puddles. But these pools that were appearing on their own, they had smooth, rounded edges. On the advice of an SPR legend, Dr. Dingwall, Playfair and Gross abandoned Annie Shaw's directions and began knocking back. And in Chapter 6, they start getting responses. Out of understandable fear, the entire family unit was now sharing one room, and it was from this room that Playfair himself first heard the knocks. These knocks were strange, he realized, fading in and out like a weak radio signal and completely unmuffled by the carpet. One night, in a desperate attempt to get the activity to quiet down, Playfair emptied the shared room of everything except Peggy Harper, her three youngest children, Pete was back at school, their beds, and a gas fireplace that was set into the wall. You guys might remember that from the cold reading. <laughs> he then went home and returned the next day to some pretty shitty news. The poltergeist had responded to this emptying of the room by ripping the gas grill off of the fireplace and hurling it across the room. It landed on Jimmy's pillow beside his head, which it would have crushed if he was struck. Yeah, absolutely would have been dead. And it's, it's one of those many incidences where, you know how in the beginning Gross and Playfair were like, okay, we understand this is alarming, but nobody's going to die. And then shit like this starts happening. I it's I would have been so mad if I was Peggy Harper. It kind of seems like it was a direct response to them saying, yeah, it. like they put down a challenge it, it, that I've had that thought a few times, too. Of It's like, dude, stop saying it's not going to kill them. I think it's making it want to kill them. Also, you want to know a weird little bit of trivia? Yeah. So the Gozer name that shows up in this haunting, uh, that is actually where uh, the Ghostbusters script took the name for the main antagonist of the first Ghostbusters movie. You mean the second one? No, the first oh, one. Oh, the first one. Right, right, yeah, the, right. The second one was Vigo, the dude right. in the painting. Yeah, right. no, the first one, Gozer the Gozerian, was taken from the Enfield case. Neat. The name Gozer. Yeah, I mean, I'm not necessarily surprised because what's-his-name is a big... Uh, Dan Aykroyd? Yeah, yeah, he's a huge... He has a huge interest in the paranormal. Yeah. That'd be a fun guy to interview. He runs an occult shop. Yep. Let's kidnap Dan Aykroyd and make him be on our podcast. We have skipped some levels. Okay. We'll just email him. There we go. Yay, I'm learning. <laughs> <laughs> While waiting for Peggy's brother John to come over and remove the fireplace from the wall, 
The thing continued its tricks, violently shaking the Harper's bedroom, apportating slippers around the house, destroying cereal bowls while the family tried to eat, and eventually, as we saw in the cold open, wrenching the fireplace partway free of the wall. This last display of power may have been response to Playfair's goading. He'd taken to calling the thing stupid when he was in the house, which I... He explained why in the book, and I was just like, don't do that. Yeah, that seemed ill-advised. It didn't yeah. last long, I noticed. Yeah. yeah. I There's several things in this in this book where I'm wondering if he took out parts where, like, Peggy Harper asked him to stop doing certain things because it was agitating the poltergeist. Hmm. Because out of all, even though Janet was the epicenter, I sometimes got the feeling that Peggy Harper understood the thing better than a lot of them. And like she seemed to know specifically what was and wasn't going to annoy it a lot of the time, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The night before the family left on holiday, Playfair tried to communicate with the creature. Setting a tape recorder running and using John Burkholm as a witness, he tried the classic one knock equals yes, two knocks equals no method, but the knocking quickly devolved into nonsense. Knocks of 10 or 5 or 7 or just constant flurries of them. Playfair eventually asked the thing if it knew it was dead. Upstairs, the Harper family was pelted with slippers and cushions and Playfair received no more answers after that. When the Harpers returned from their seaside trip a couple of weeks later, Playfair and Gross in tow, the activity woke up more or less instantly. The Knox returned as well, and Gross had a go at talking to it. He, too, began to receive nonsense responses, though the entity did claim to die in a year ending in 53 and stated its refusal to leave the house. It then killed the batteries in Playfair's tape recorder and threw some shit. You know, same as ever. Playfair, ever a believer in adding more cooks, brought in a physicist named Eduardo Balinovsky, who, on Janet's 12th birthday, arrived to a party of upside-down furniture and thrown knives. Because it was throwing knives now. Yeah. Uh, Not just throwing them. Having them follow Janet, and that one that's especially upsetting. Just imagine a knife floating along right behind you wherever you go. Yep, uh, we, we go into that one a little bit. It's, it's, one of my, it's one of the incidences that sticks out the most to me. Mm-hmm. Balinovsky was able to observe electromagnetic spikes during the activity, and during his visit, Rose had her leg grabbed and held in place by an invisible force. Janet's birthday heralded in a period of more intense activity. Furniture was regularly flipping over and hopping in place or across the floor. Bigger and heavier pieces than before, too. Janet's bed turned over with her on it. Peggy Harper began talking to the entity herself, leaving out paper and pencil and asking for messages. The first one it left told her it would never leave and threatened her into not reading the message to anyone. It was scrawled on a page of Janet's exercise book. And then it left another one asking for a teabag. When Peggy left it said teabag, it gave her a a used one, like a used teabag in exchange, I guess. Was it going, hey, throw this out? Uh, You throw it out. (laughs) (laughs) I think it might have been doing just that, yeah. (laughs) 
I should the fucking tea bag incident. <laughs> Can I have a tea bag? And then she gave it a tea bag, and it was like, "Here you go." It's this old shitty tea bag that's been used. He's having tea now. Did it steal a tea? It, it probably stole that tea bag from one of the neighbors' house, didn't it? Ha Not dick is so gray. Playfair tried to invite along some other SPR members, by which I mean he invited one guy, and that guy brought six other guys who were not invited and did not introduce themselves to these people or wait to be invited in. They then proceeded to be assholes. Peggy Harper banned the rest of the SPR from her house and basically only let Playfair and Gross in for a while after that. She did not like the SPR. No. She was not fond of them. Justifiably. Yeah, they sucked. (laughs) Everything they did when they weren't Gross or Playfair or someone those two had directly vetted, they just made shit worse. Yeah, no, absolutely they did. Well, and they, the people they brought in were so wildly disrespectful to the family. Yeah. yeah. They would just start going around the house and doing shit, and they wouldn't even speak to Mrs. Harper. They would just be like, hi. Well, if I remember correctly, at one point, they literally just walked into her house and started yeah. doing stuff. They didn't even address her. Yeah. yeah. And they went and just started talking to her fucking kids. Like, I'm yeah. sorry. If some, some people I don't know walk in my door and begin aggressively talking to my 15-year-old, there's about to be blood on the floor. Yeah. Yep. No, I'm, in a, I'm, about, I'm about to be throwing hands or hitting them with something. Yeah. Imagine if the poltergeist go- started going, what are you doing? And started throwing knives at these invaders. If it's like, I'm the only one allowed to bully these fragile children. Disprove this, Steve. <laughs> uh, he fucking steals their tea bags. Just all of them for the rest of their life. None of them ever get to have tea again because every time they do, the tea bag just vanishes. And then it's just Peggy Harper sobbing, digging a hole in her back garden and burying all of these hundreds and hundreds of tea bags. There's just tea leaves left on the bottom of the cup says, that says, get used to coffee. <laughs> in chapter eight, this invisible cock barnacle decides that it's sick of throwing marbles and starts throwing Janet out of her bed. Just just chucking her like a noisy cat. So they separated her from the rest of the family just to, just to, te- they were fucking tired. So they just put Janet in a different bedroom and it kind of worked. The kid got to sleep, but both she and Rose moaned and thrashed in their sleep like a lot, like it was weird and significant. But they were asleep and, you know. Peggy Harper's exhaustion was getting to the point where it was medically dangerous. The children were sent to a temporary care home while she recovered at her brother's house. There, she and Playfair swapped theories. Peggy favored the dominant one in this area of study, that poltergeists are externalized trauma, bodiless but violent. Playfair posed another one, that poltergeists were psychic parasites, feeding on the unlucky. But part of him feared that this was demonic haunted by memories of a previous case that ended in possession and suicide, but painfully aware of the potentially lethal nature of Catholic exorcisms. Playfair felt a tad stuck on that front. But Peggy Harper refused. She wanted the problem understood and solved, not merely chased out. In fact, she was more willing to give psychiatry a second try over exorcism. So Playfair went out with a butterfly net and a letter-granting tenure and returned with Dr. Fenwick. While waiting for the chance to send Janet to Fenwick's ward, Maudsley Hospital, 
the kids return from the respite home. That night, with the children experimentally sleeping in separate homes, uh, two of them were in the Harper's actual home, and two of them were with Peggy's brother's family. Janet once again went into one of her strange fits. Later, she was found unconscious, draped over the radio in an unnatural position. More distressing still, it soon came to light that a few incidents had occurred at the respite home where the kids were at. Minor ones, but still. Janet continued to go into trances for the next few days and be moved around her bedroom by invisible forces, and the local shrink was less than no help. The trances were only stopped when two of Playfair's friends from the Brazilian spiritist scene arrived. Janet, still in a visibly distressed, unconscious state, was lying on the couch. Luis Gasparetto, a trance artist, put his hands in the air over her body and moved them back and forth. Alice Dubagras, a healer, did the same for Peggy. Janet, for the first time in days, relaxed. Then she started doing trance shit again as soon as the mediums left the room because this literal middle schooler can't catch a fucking break. But anyway, Luis tried to order the entity out of Janet and she snapped out of her trance, whereupon Luis basically said, so look, in a past life, you did a bunch of crappy stuff to some people and they're back for revenge, which I'm not sure was the right call. But that night, the house was quiet. Seemed to work. Guilt. As Playfair said repeatedly, the mediums seem to be the only ones that are doing jack shit about this situation. Mm-hmm. The next morning, Janet drew some pretty scary pictures while behaving oddly. One was of a woman with a bloody wound in her throat and the name Watson written under her. The Watsons were the previous tenants of their house. Mr. Watson died there, and Mrs. Watson died elsewhere of a tumor in her throat. And that is going to bring us a bit clumsily to discussion question two. Playfair's reasoning about bringing in as many people as possible boils down to, we need so many witnesses, this can't be labeled as fraud. I, however, feel a lot of concern about having this many opposing viewpoints targeting one problem. Where do your feelings on this approach of as many people as possible lie? I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to have lots of witnesses. I do think that it might be a bad thing to just invite anybody and everybody because, you know, you end up with scenarios like what happened here. You have the, like these douchebag magicians who barge in, look around, do nothing and say, it's fraud. (laughs) The the douchebag magicians though, sounds like a pretty competent high school band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like I mean cuz you, you end up with you know, I mean you no matter what you want witnesses especially people outside the circle, right? Because if you if you can get that that uh, adds like a level of credibility especially if those other witnesses are credible. But if you keep it like insular to you know just the people involved, nobody the people are just going to write you off. Yeah. You know, that's just unfortunately the nature of these this kind of thing. Uh, if you don't have almost like an uh, you know unbiased third party come in and also see this shit, uh, they're, it's going to be harder for people to believe you. Mind you, the second that that person sees that shit, they're no longer an unbiased third party, but that's, that's irrelevant. Yeah. Um, 
So like, I, 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 I don't, unfortunately, I don't think there's a right answer here because one of them is safer and that would be keeping it to just those that you trust, right? Uh, and on the other side of it, bringing in as many witnesses, you're going to get a lot more people that, that are going to know about the story. There's going to be a lot more, a lot more chances for misinformation to get spread, a lot more chances for lies to be told, a lot more chances for people to call you a fraud. So, like, I think, the, uh, I think bringing in more people is good, but I think it needs to be, I think it needed to be in this scenario. I think it needed to be more controlled. Yeah. And the part of the problem, I think, is that there was zero control over the people coming and going. Like, uh, Mr. Playfair, as great as he is, doesn't seem to be great at, at controlling a room. Yeah. You know, and the other investigator... Gross. Uh, Gross was n- very not good at controlling a room from what it seemed like. I, I weirdly got the impression almost that because they were members of the SPR that there's like this weird open door policy where other members of the SPR are just assumed to have a standing invitation to go wandering in. Even like the way that uh, that Playfair wrote it, like he they invited the one guy and he brought six other SPR members. Right. Yeah. And it's like, and he, Playfair kind of wrote about it like, yeah, th- you know, this happens. If that was me, I would have been pissed i mean yeah. forget bringing people into an incredibly delicate situation full of traumatized children if i'm having a house party and my friend brings six people that i was not accounting for i'm pissed off yeah no yeah. exactly so it's like I, I i think that ultimately i think that is probably the biggest problem with with the way that he went about the we need as many witnesses so that this can't be labeled a fraud is that he couldn't he couldn't control the people once they got there. And, and I'm not saying control what they see, control what they just fucking have a semblance of control over the room. Yeah, it 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 should have been. I feel like it should have been a more rigorous process before bringing yeah. in people at all of like sitting them down of it's like, what experience do you have on previous poltergeist cases? What experience do you have with children? And Wh- bring in people with no, no experience at all. But you you almost have to be like, yeah, it's like, especially with the children thing, it's like you should vet them to make sure that they're not going to be uh, like, like so many of them seem to do just fucking barge in and like fucking accuse the children of being, uh, being little liars. And even the kids came out later and said, yeah, we did play tricks yeah. on, on, on Mr. Playfair, but he caught us in all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, even beyond who you bring in there, I... I just kept coming back to, Jesus, is there no standards in the SPR of who they're letting in even? Yeah. Because many of the people who got involved, because they were SPR members, it didn't seem like they had any business being there, and they were only interested, really almost like it was a carnival sideshow. Yeah. Like, they were there to figure out the trick, like they're going to a magic show. Yeah. No, that's Uh, exactly what it seemed like. They were all, they must have all been real big fans of Houdini. Yeah, it, I mean, like similarly, Rory, I feel uh, that Playfair's idea was good in execution, not as good. Um, the the one thing I will say though is that probably because he did this is why the Enfield case is still so well remembered. Yeah, because we had so many witnesses. There were so many people who backed up the uh, claims of the Harper family. That said, 
I did question uh, Playfair a bit here regarding well, what is what are you what are you trying to get out of the situation? If his goal was to help the family resolve the situation and end the haunting, then I don't know necessarily if that helped. That seemed like it was entirely a pragmatic move, uh, made in the made so that the case would be believed. But that necessarily doesn't move the Harper family closer to catharsis or resolution. So I do wonder if the influence of those extra people prolonged the case uh, somehow or if uh, and if things might have been quieter or at least a little uh, more survivable or or safe had there been less people involved. Yeah, I mean, for sure, I think it probably would have been. And I'm not even talking about the bullshit that the humans pulled. I'm thinking, did the activity respond to there being more and more and more interest. Yes. Yeah. Ah. yeah. You and I are on a similar wavelength. I had concerns. I had concerns about that too. And it was also, it was, it's just one of those things of, okay, clear, clearly we were never going to get solid answers here, but I just, I, I have concerns about the kids especially because the kids always needed to be the priority here of them having just this many adults just in and out of their lives and telling them this very contradictory, at times quite scary or upsetting information with no real constant through line or nothing solid to grab onto. I just worry about what that was doing to them psychologically or emotionally and regardless of if the activity was directly linked to their emotional states i just i just feel like this amount of chaos could not have been good for them yeah and also i just i feel like on some level his premise is flawed of it's like i don't of it's like i think at this point we've kind of almost proven that it doesn't matter how many people you have witnessing these events that's just not going to that's just not going to matter to a good portion of the population. Like, I think at this point, the Enfield case appears to have a couple of hundred witnesses total and nobody at the SPR gave a shit. So it's kind of like you're it, it, it's like you're bailing out a boat with a hole in the bottom, man. Like there mm. are not there's no magic number of people you're going to hit where it can't be labeled fraudulent anymore because you're missing the fundamental point of why people don't believe this. They, they don't want to. And that you can't get past. Yeah. Well, and I think that was, I, we have to remember though, we do have hindsight to our advantage where Playfair didn't. At the time this book was written when this was going on, uh, there wasn't really the vibrant paranormal community that exists now. Uh, and there was far fewer people working in that field. So I could see him kind of still having this hope that maybe we can legitimize this. Whereas personally, I uh, did note something that uh, Dean Radin said in the interview with him, uh, science moves forward at the pace of funerals mm-hmm. in that I, for, and I think just on a more global scale, not just science, I think that that's the case when it comes to phenomenon like this, you will never get acceptance as long as the majority of people would rather that phenomenon not be a thing. Because if it's only affecting that family, it's not spilling out into the streets, it's not on the 9 o'clock news, I don't need to look at it, and I can then tell myself that those kids are lying, and that makes my world stay the safe, sane place I want it to be. Uh, Because, I mean, think about it, the the whole idea of a poltergeist 
There is a thing you cannot see, you cannot defend yourself against. It could be in the room right now, and any object in the room could come whizzing at your head at any moment. It's terrifying. Yeah. It's very scary. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it, it violates kind of the sense of that we are in, you know, we uh, are in control of our bodies, especially like what think like uh, Rose getting held, her leg getting held. We are in control of our bodies and we are able to kind of, you know, keep an eye on our surroundings and defend ourselves if worse comes to worse. Because, I mean, everyone does this. Matt, who, all our listeners at home, email us if you don't. But I, I genuinely believe every single person on the planet occasionally will sit there imagining crises so they can imagine how they'd be the hero or they'd be fast and smart about how they'd react to it. And the poltergeist one is not one you could do that with (laughs) is yeah, you can't fight it. Uh, you could try to get away, but it might follow you home. It usually does. It, you can't, you can't usually stop it. Usually it stop, has to stop on its own. All you can do is endure it and, and try to stay sane. It's like, that's, that's a tough pill for some people to swallow, especially yeah. because, especially in the West, where uh, it almost seems like in uh, in a lot of Western countries, helplessness is in some ways seen as a moral failing. Mm-hmm. Like you, you you're supposed to be able to take care of yourself no matter what. You know, they'll pull yourself by your bootstraps. Individualism. And the whole idea that you might be rendered powerless is unacceptable to many people. They can't. They cannot deal with that situation. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We ready to move on? I'm ready for part three. Let's do it. In chapter nine, we move into December of 1977. While the case was far from over, Playfair still describes this period as being the climax of the events. As Janet got older, the incidents continued getting more violent. Phantom needle pricks and invisible slaps became part of the routine now. The furniture hopping grew more aggressive, and Janet felt something unseen lifting her and moving her around. Which, you know, stop doing that. That's weird and creepy. Just leave the kid alone. Peggy Harper tried to put her foot down. Refusing to be afraid, she shouted at the thing to leave every time any activity began. It didn't seem to help much. One night, Janet, totally unconscious, was dragged from her bed and out the bedroom door, which had opened on its own. Three minutes later, according to Playfair's old tapes, the incident repeated. Now the entire family was awake to see it happen. Rose and Janet's dreams escalated. Now they were sharing nightmares. In her sleep, Rose was heard talking about ten naughty things. When asked what these things were, she, still asleep, listed off, Number one is a baby. Number two is a little girl. Three is a big girl. Four is a very young girl, about 15. Five is a very old lady. Six is a young boy. Seven is getting on to about 18. Eight is an old man. She paused. Number nine, I don't know what it is. He hasn't got a face. And number 10 has gone away. Then she suddenly exclaimed, Frank Watson. Frank Watson was the man who died downstairs, the previous tenant. Rose had not been told that her sister was drawing his late wife. It was also around now that Janet was hypnotized as Playfair desperately hoped to glimpse what was going on in her mind. Dr. Ian Fletcher, a senior SPR member, did the honors. It took 45 minutes to get Janet under, and the results were intriguing. Janet's normally rapid-fire speech slowed down significantly. When questioned about what she thought was causing the poltergeist, she said it was because of her and Rose. 
but she wasn't sure how. She blamed an increase in unhappiness and said they, the children, were frightened of their father. She also said she hoped it would all end by Christmas. I want to have a nice Christmas, Janet told them. That broke my heart a little. I know. Little girl just wanted to have a nice Christmas, but something kept hurling her violently from her bed. Invisible cock barnacle. Remember how Playfair kept adding more people to this? Time for another one! Professor Haystead, a physicist who'd been consulting on the case, sent his student, David Robertson, to live with the family for a week. While he was there, he observed spoons and other metal objects bending of their own accord. He also prompted Janet to try spoon bending, which she accomplished right before her mother's eyes. We're into chapter 10 now, and this is when the house became a proper spectacle for the neighborhood. Strangers came by to gawk, and a number of letters began arriving as well, ranting about demons and evil and other things that Peggy Harper had no goddamn time for. Two psychologists from the SPR joined the team for a while, right as the poltergeist began barking and whistling. Please note, the entire family and Playfair attested that Janet couldn't whistle. The girl had braces. I had braces, too. I can't fucking whistle because of it. This is a thing. It's true. I never could whistle. Me yeah. neither. I, I just blow wet, gross air. Yeah. <sighs> Look, some, some people just can't physically whistle. And if the family is saying Janet can't fucking whistle, I don't know why the entire world is going like, clearly Janet's been able to whistle like a madman since birth, and the family's carefully been hiding it for just such an occasion as a fake poltergeist. Yeah, that tracks. That seems like something people do. Yeah, Yeah. that's just fucking crazy enough. Yeah, yeah, because it's not like, you know, it's clearly these people had unlimited time to just sit around and come up with how they were going to fool the society for psychical research specifically. For no money. For no money. They were in it for the love of the game. They did it for the lulls. (laughs) They did it for shiggles. (laughs) On December 10th, the first night that the SPR psychologists were observing, Maurice Gross tried again to communicate with the poltergeist, addressing it by the name they'd all picked out, Charlie. He tried to get it to bark or whistle on command. Like the early stages of the knocking, it would only do so when he left the room. He then tried to get Charlie to say his name. From under Janet's bed, a harsh masculine voice said, Dr. Gross Gross, mushing the title of one of the psychologists with Gross's surname. This voice was caught on audio tape, as was Janet's startled reaction to it. It is interesting to note that these phantom voices, far too deep to come from the afflicted victim, have been observed in many other possession and poltergeist cases. But that's not, like, a widely publicized phenomenon. Like, Nick is right. Like, that is considered, like, it's it's been observed in a lot of cases, but only in really serious ones. And it's it's not commonly known like the knocking and the moving furniture is. This voice was a brand new development and would become one of the biggest sticking points of the case. Sometimes it answered questions, calling itself Joe Watson when asked its name. Sometimes it merely growled or knocked. Sometimes it screamed abuses at its questioners before falling silent. While the psychologist from the SPR advised Playfair to investigate the possibilities of ventriloquism, he was more inclined to believe the voice was genuine. It was just so 
guttural and harsh, nothing like Janet's normal voice. And regardless of how long these conversations went on, Janet's speaking voice never suffered. Further discussions revealed another name, Bill. Bill claimed he'd also lived in the house and was throwing Janet out of bed in order to reclaim his own space. He also said the house was being targeted by ten separate entities. Recall Rose's dream talking of ten naughty things. In an interesting experiment, Bill was coaxed into singing along to his favorite song, Scarlet Fever, alongside Rose and Janet. Playfair taped the event, and the results were, well, odd. Whenever Bill was singing, Janet wasn't, but the transition was flawless, barely noticeable. Furthermore, both Janet and the voice laughed on the tape, and their giggles blended seamlessly with each other. Chapter 11 heralds the arrival of Richard Gross, Maurice's son, a skeptical attorney who wanted to question this disembodied voice for himself. And since Playfair would have allowed an entire clown college into the Harper's living room if it meant more witnesses, he was permitted to do so. At first, the voice refused to speak with Richard in the room, but it did locate some lost money by giving the coin's location and described its death after some coaxing. Allegedly, it went blind and then died of a hemorrhage. When the voice got exasperated, it revealed its oddly hostile nature towards religion and accused Richard of being a rabbi. Janet, unlike the voice, was fascinated by religion. Richard noticed that when he was in the room with the voice, it would stop speaking when he tried to look at it, or if he even thought about looking at it, to the point where he suspected his mind was being read somehow. And that's going to bring us to discussion question number three. All right. At a few points in this book, Playfair floats the idea that the entity seems to be trying to discredit Janet. It only spoke when other witnesses left the room, wrote notes on pages from her school book, so on and so forth. Putting on your conspiracy caps, why would it be doing that? Um... So I had some ideas. I, I did think about this quite a bit uh, because, you know, like I said, this is a nuanced situation. As you mentioned earlier, Jay, uh, the kids do play tricks. They yeah. did try to imitate the haunting at a couple points, but they got caught. And combining that with the frame job the poltergeist seemed to be doing, it get, becomes a very muddy situation. So I was thinking about why the poltergeist would be interested in framing Janet or at least kind of throwing suspicion in there. Uh, throwing the suspicion of fraud into the situation. And Playfair suggested that there are rules, like maybe the dead are only allowed to make to let us know so much about what's going on, on the other side. And while I could see that, I don't know. The, the voice didn't strike me as the rules-following type. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> so I was trying to think of other options. Um, one that I thought of was, if it is some sort of manifestation of Janet's subconscious... It doesn't know why it's doing those things either. It just is. Um, moving into the other ideas, I mean, it could just be that it hates Janet. I mean, it, it very clearly was attached to her. It was throwing her constantly. Uh, although, weirdly, it never tried to kill her, as far as I can tell, outside of the incident where the knife followed her around. The strangling. That's right. She was strangled. Yeah, no, Four I'm going to go back to... I'm going to go back to it hates Janet. Uh, strangling. Yeah, that's... Not a loving act, right? Yeah, it also uh -huh. um, flipped over her bed while she was on it, and Playfair kind of passed over that incident. 
I interpreted it, it was trying to crush her. I think it actually tried to kill Janet seven or eight times throughout this book. Ah, that's just good old-fashioned fun. Uh, no, my, my honestly, though, my biggest, uh, my biggest explanation I came to is simply, it's an asshole. That's it. It's a jerk, and it did this to hurt her because that's most of what it did, to hurt her or to mess up her life. And having her labeled as a fraud for all time would certainly do that. It takes her out of the role of victim where everyone's going to be trying to help her and puts her into the role of perpetrator where everyone is going to make her life worse, hence making the poltergeist job easier. Okay. So maybe it wasn't trying so much as to point her out as a fraud so much as show that it wasn't Janet that was the epicenter. Yeah. Um, because I'm not convinced by this young child hits puberty, becomes poltergeist thing. Especially not in this scenario, because one thing that I noticed in this case specifically was a lack of talking to, lack of uh, really anything involving the mom. That's fair. She reported the case, right? And told the story, witnessed it, took really detailed notes. But ultimately, once Gross said, yep, Janet's the epicenter, that's all anybody focused on. Yeah, I mean, there was some di- discussion of is Rose right. kind of a secondary epicenter that's feeding into it. But yeah, no, I don't. Outside of the fact that she seemed to get head, they noted that she got headaches right before poltergeist activity occurred. No one really ever suspected Mrs. Janet or Mrs. Harper. Which I also find mildly uh, funny. Like that was one of the things that actually started me thinking that maybe this is more revolved around Peggy rather than the children uh, because of like the evolution that seemed to happen as it went on with as it went on. Like now Peggy's getting headaches. She's being affected by it. So my, my thought about the whole thing was maybe it's trying to show that Janet is a, is, is a, a cause of this to show that she's not the cause of this. Um, because maybe it was maybe it was more so Peggy, and that would have been. And if that's the case, then wouldn't subconsciously wouldn't the mom almost in a way try to take the spotlight off of her daughter? And maybe that was in a really bad way of doing it. But to kind of, I guess, elaborate on what I was thinking, kind of going off of uh, uh, Playfair's idea that it might be more parasitic in nature. Um, the, like when all of this started, it wasn't, if I remember correctly, it wasn't long after the divorce Yeah, from her husband, Yeah, which is an incredibly stressful event for everybody involved. Now she's a single mom of four children. In London in the seventies. Yep. Um, and a lot of this seemed to react to Peggy's mood just as much as anyone else is around. And I think that, uh, for, for example, like Playfair brought in the, the, the group of Brazilian people who did like the, like the Reiki style healing, right? Yeah. Activity died down. We go 
uh, what was it, like a week or so later, that Peggy is brought into Janet's school because all of this is affecting her schoolwork. Yeah. Activity goes right back up. Uh, when they're on vacation, nothing. Nothing in the home except uh, not, nothing in the home because Playfair was there. And only one small inc- incident that happened outside of that in which, which they heard a funny noise, like someone, like a person trying to intimidate a dog bark, which could have literally been anything. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it was around her. And then when the kids were split up, the activity that happened was the one around her. Well, Janet had stuff happening to her in her respite home when she was taken away. Correct. And... I I think that um I guess my ultimate my big theory behind this is I wonder if the psychic energy that I think may that I think may have stemmed from the stress and everything coming from if you know Peggy had all this psychic energy built up over literally her entire lifetime of unuse the stress of the divorce and being a single mom for the first time maybe her energy this energy that was leaking from her or whatever the the parasitic energy was possessing her kids. You you know Interesting. You know what that makes me wonder also. I mean, okay, so they are still her kids though. That what if they too had psychic ability and that right. it's not any one of them. It was a combination yeah. of all of them and I think that maybe the like possession starting from the mom kind of sparked whatever was inside the children then escalating it up I- even further. And as it continues to go, the anxiety and the stress from all of this happening makes it go go more and more. And then, sure, the stress of changing in your body, going through puberty, obviously adding into that with the kids. I think all of that built up together was probably a big cause of what was going on. And since, like, unlike some of the other poltergeist stories that we've read about or heard about, there was a lot of elements here of possession. Yes, and that's a what lot. makes me think that maybe because. Rose and Janet are Peggy's kids. It's probably easier for her energy to possess them. And and that's completely fair um, because they're at an age where they wouldn't have individuated yet. And individuation, for anyone listening who doesn't know, is basically a fancy psychology term for beginning to consider yourself a separate entity from your parents. Yeah. You, you know what? Okay, so regardless of if the entity was a manifestation of psychic ability or another idea that gets forward in the book, uh, which I, I liked, uh, was the idea that there are other entities, but they're utilizing these people's power to do things. Right. Um, and regardless of which case it is, if, Rory, what you're suggesting is true, framing Janet could be a way of, A, introducing the stress of being called, called a fraud, into the situation mm-hmm. and B it could drive be an attempt to drive a wedge between Mrs. Harper and her children. Mm. If she thinks that her child is, if she came to believe her child was behind all of this and those stresses equal for either the entity that was created or the entities that have started to feed upon them, it creates more power, it creates more stress. Yes. And so they would be, I mean, regardless of if they are a creation of psychic energy or an outside entity, Whatever that thing is, it would have a vested interest, theoretically, in perpetuating its existence. And yes. a way to do that is to ruin the family. Especially when you have all these other people coming in and pouring their own energy into this of the fraudulent activity, of it all being, fr- like, of blaming anybody and blaming everybody of being a fraud. Of course, that's what it latched on to. Yeah. 
you know what haunts me? Like I, I took it, I took it out of the summary because it wasn't super relevant and we got no information about why. We still have no idea why that shrank packed Pete up and sent him off to a special school for troubled children. That's true. When every adult involved in this who met Pete was like, Pete's a perfectly normal, functional kid. And, you know, if if Peggy's psychic and therefore most of her children are psychic, we have no idea what the fuck that psychiatrist saw when he was talking to Pete. We have no idea what Pete fucking said to him. And we we have no idea what Pete might be capable of without realizing it. That's true. Well, I mean, I don't think the Harpers ever found out why that psychiatrist sent Pete away. No, Peggy said repeatedly, she's like, we don't know why. They didn't tell us why. They just said he had to leave. That's an artifact of the times. And it blew my mind because, I mean... I guess, I mean, granted, how the, the investigators acted towards the kid was also a bit of an artifact of the times, because in the 70s, I mean, for most of our history, kids were seen less as people. They were more like animals or house pets that yeah. eventually got to become people. And and then you see the massive disrespect of not explaining why they're taking your child away. I could see that as an artifact of sexism of the 70s. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, it's too... What, 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 it's too complicated for your little female brain. Go back to making sandwiches. You'll get your son back eventually. Yep. So basically what I, part of me is just going, it's like, did, did Pete start levitating goddamn staplers? And the psychiatrist was like, okay, let's, okay, let's just put this somewhere. (laughs) Who knows? We'll take the Pete and put him over there. We'll take Pete and push him somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I though I will say I think ultimately my big my leading theory is still it's just an asshole. Yeah, I th- I think my leading theory leans towards it was trying to traumatize her further in order to make her leak more psychic power so it could eat more. Um, going off of of Rory's theory, if I operate from that theoretical framework. I could float a hypothesis that the stress of having four children was starting to really fuck with Mrs. Harper on a psychological level and a weird lizard brain defense mechanism just kind of assessed the family and was like, well, one of these little turds has to go and just picked Janet and like Nick said, tried to drive a wedge between Janet and the rest of the family. I I had a thought like that too. Yeah, like how... Like how sometimes when you're really, really frustrated with one of your pets, that really shitty part of your brain starts telling you, it's like, you can just go put him at the shelter. You don't have to keep this thing. And you'd never you'd never think that if it wasn't uh, 3.30 in the morning and you weren't cleaning shit off of your carpet. Mm-hmm. Like, I can see that happening with this poor, overwhelmed woman. Because, like... I think Janet's an adorable cupcake, but I do understand that that adorable cupcake is probably also a terror because the way that they are describing her is that she was a difficult, energetic child that wasn't great at listening. So it's entirely possible that Mrs. Harper's subconscious was like, well, what if we just like put her in a bag and put that bag on a mail truck and then walk away? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for the record, I never, I never think about that with my pets. What I think about is revenge. Yeah. When one of my, when uh, <laughs> I remember one time when Watson pooped on the floor in the middle of the night. I was up at three, you know, three four in the morning cleaning it, 
and I was looking at him the entire time muttering how I was going to take a giant shit in his litter box just to show him how it felt. You would have had to clean that up, though. I know. That was the problem. That's why I didn't do it. That's the issue, is that when the person you're threatening, A, can't understand you, and B, doesn't have thumbs, you're very limited. And also, listeners, I need to drive home. I'm never going to take any of my pets to the shelter unless it's like a choice between that and they starve in my house because I'm a homeless mime or something. I don't know. Um, But, you know, sometimes when I'm angry, I'm just looking at Buffy and it's like, you live here out of my good grace. (laughs) Your obsession with mimes just tells me that you desperately want a future where you never have to talk to anyone ever again. No, that's not it. I just find mimes inherently hilarious. They don't make any sense to me. People just pantomiming doesn't make sense to you? They're an ancestor of clowns. I don't... I don't... I don't know if there is, like, a family tree of clowns. So who wants to talk about that time Janet levitated? What's the jester? Is that the grandpa? Yeah, let's uh, let's move on. We're talking about levitating. Yes, yes, the fool predates the mime. Goes full mime jester. No, it goes full jester mime clown. What's what? after clown? You. Isn't uh, oh. isn't that like weird obscure French clown before clown? Pierrot. Yeah, that one. Um, a Pierrot is not a clown. A Pierrot, much like a Harlequin, is a stock character for uh, plays in that time. Like I said, that weird obscure French clown. Yeah, but he's still a clown. It's a sing- It's a type of clown. It's still a clown. That's what I'm saying. Let's move on. <laughs> I'm so good. I'm in the weeds with clown lineages. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Don't bring him into this. <laughs> Poseidon. <laughs> ah. Yes, the levitating. David Robertson was still hanging around and challenged the voice to do something impressive, like passing solid matter through solid matter, for instance. As part of the experiment, he had Janet alone in her room, bouncing on her bed, to see if the entity would fling her. It's going to fling her, dumbass. That's its favorite thing to do, is throw Janet. Ugh. As soon as David shut the door, Janet, being a damn trooper, calmly informed him that she was levitating. <laughs> I listened to the last podcast to the Left Up uh, series on this, and they were basically like, yeah, according to everyone who heard it, she just sort of went, I'm levitating. They're like, she was she was just really, she was kind of numb to a lot of this shit at this point. And so when she lifted off the floor, she was just like, hey, David, hey, David, I don't know if you care, but I'm floating. Uh, yes, Janet, I care. <laughs> I, I wish to see the floating. Thank you. And when he tried to open the door to see the floating, he found it stuck shut. A bed had been shoved against it. When Robertson and Peggy Harper managed to get inside, uh, Janet seemed all right, just a bit dazed, and they decided to repeat the experiment because, hey, the kid's already traumatized. Let's see if we can unlock a new secret mental illness beyond that. So Peggy handed her darling daughter a red pen and was like, doodle on the ceiling next time you're up there, and then they left the amazing flying dog girl to her fate. After the door was shut, they tried to talk to Janet through it, but she abruptly stopped answering. Once again, the door was barred. When they finally got inside, not only was there a red line drawn around the ceiling light, but Janet reported having gone through the wall and into Mrs. Nottingham's bedroom next door. 
When Mrs. Nottingham went to inspect said room, she found a book belonging to Janet that moments ago had been in the girl's room. There was no possible way for someone to have gotten out of the Harper's house and into the Nottingham's house, put the book there, and then vanish from sight in the approximately two and a half minutes it took from her to get from one room to the other. The poltergeist had managed to perform these feats in front of even more witnesses. One neighbor saw an apertated cushion appear on the sidewalk in front of him moments after the voice promised to make the object disappear. Another neighbor, through Janet's window, saw several of her possessions swirling in circles in midair before striking the glass and then saw Janet bob by, lying horizontally in the air. A nearly impossible feat to accomplish by merely jumping on her bed. Both witnesses on the street were highly shaken by what they saw, and Playfair is adamant that the movements they described could not be replicated by natural means. He questioned Janet about her trip into the Nottingham's house and realized that her description of colorless objects and an odd floaty feeling in her body strongly resembled out-of-body experiences, namely the ones he discussed with Ingo Swan. Swan also lacked color vision during his OBEs. Playfair indicated that this might have to do with the two hemispheres of the brain being unable to work in concert during these journeys. In Chapter 12, a famous poltergeist victim named Matthew Manning visited at Playfair's request. The Harpers liked him, and he liked them. Much like the Harpers, his extraordinary experiences had him labeled a fraud, and he was sympathetic to what they were facing. During the two-hour talk he had with the family, he told them his theory on poltergeists. He told them his theory on poltergeists. To paraphrase, I think it began as formless energy, and later spirits come to feed on it and use it for their own ends. Around this time, the voice was becoming more active. It was speaking up at the grocery store and other places outside of the house and showed no real reluctance to speak to Manning. It added a new face to its ensemble as well, declaring itself to be Vic Nottingham's late father. Manning didn't believe this, saying that there was only one spirit in the house, wearing many masks. The voice countered, we've all got different titles. Later that day, Playfair's recorder vanished. They searched the house top to bottom. It was gone, only returning after a large table upstairs tried to crush Janet to death. This would not be the only object to vanish and inexplicably return during this deranged case. I'm skipping Milburn Christopher because he's a liar and a weirdo, and I hope he has to sit on a Greyhound bus, desperate to pee but unable to bring himself to use the disgusting bus toilet for like four hours someday. The harshest of hells. Chapter 13, y'all. Time for Christmas on Wood Lane. The Harpers decorated their house and tried to stay positive. The activity lulled a bit downstairs, but upstairs, upstairs it was still fling, bang, growl, throw, scream. And the voice wasn't shy anymore. No, now it wouldn't shut the fuck up, even if somebody was looking directly at Janet. And here's the bizarro thing. When the voice was talking, Janet's mouth was moving, but not forming the right words. Why? Why can't one thing be normal? Most of what the voice said was nonsense, but sometimes it was eerily accurate. It listed personal details about Gross's home life, details that none of the Harpers, let alone Janet specifically, could have known about. And then, on December 23rd, the family's two goldfish were found dead in their tank. The voice proudly claimed to have electrocuted them to death with spirit energy. 
And the next day, the Harper's parakeet was dead too. Once again, the voice claimed responsibility, and it was only getting started. For on Christmas Day, using curtains and dressing gowns, it tried to strangle Janet on four separate occasions. I just wanted to have a nice Christmas. Terrifying the family and Playfair. It was, oh God. Since they were up anyway, defending Janet from constrictor curtains, a rare and deadly predator, Playfair said, fuck it, let's tape a microphone to the back of the kid's neck and record the voice that way, which they did. On a vibrational level, the voice was very distinct from Janet's own, almost overwhelming the equipment when it spoke. This experiment will be repeated later, and shit will remain wild. After this, Playfair changed tactics, and the family agreed to deny the voice any attention or interaction. It fucking hated this, almost as much as it hated when somebody in the house prayed. On previous occasions, the voice had claimed it kept ghost dogs with it to protect it from prayer. So, Playfair, alone in the living room while the family slept, recited a prayer meant to quell poltergeists, and the family had a peaceful night for once. Welcome to chapter 14. I'm exhausted. Anyway, early on in 1978, a new asshole seems to have joined in on the invisible circus of life ruiners. The voice claimed that Tommy, a mischievous spirit, was responsible for destroying the Christmas decorations and then told Peggy to get rid of the knives in the kitchen to keep Tommy from doing something awful with them. Peggy ignored it, but the next day, Janet came bolting downstairs, terrified, exclaiming that a levitating knife had been following her around upstairs. Remember it was just throwing them like a normal person? At dinner that night, Rose questioned the possibility of this event and had her own knife stolen as punishment. Furthermore, the voice started coming from Rose as well, though it oddly seemed more communicative with her. And then the voice started playing with literal shit as in writing on the walls with it and throwing it at members of the family and smearing it into the sink. This, Playfair felt, couldn't possibly be the kids. Their disgust and horror was so evident that he doubted they could have brought themselves to touch it, let alone paint with it. During this chapter, Janet is caught in one of her very few tricks. Playfair's recorder was once again missing, but was quickly found inside a cupboard. The recording had captured Janet hiding it. She was gently scolded, and she admitted to it so quickly that Playfair felt this was a one-time thing. On a couple of other occasions, he saw Rose doing odd things, trying to slam a door while in bed or hurling a cushion, but she had no memory of doing so. Gross and Playfair felt inclined to believe she'd been influenced or pushed into it rather than choosing to do so of her own free will. Furthermore, a speech therapist visited and confirmed one of Playfair's earlier thoughts— Namely, that if the girls were doing the voice, their normal voices should be audibly strained, which they never were. Graham Morris returned to visit and reported a second nearby poltergeist, which bore some resemblance to the Harper's issues. Only thing they've got that you don't is the fires, Morris said like a fucking moron. Playfair wept internally as the voice presumably began using ghost Google to learn how to commit arson. In chapter 15, we touch on these issues, namely the anomalous fires that were happening in the second home, this one belonging to Robert and Marilyn Winters. These fires would burst to life all on their own, scorch whatever they were sitting on, like a sweater or the bedspread, and then put themselves out without ever spreading. 
the fire prevention officers were fucking baffled. After seven different fires, they just shrugged helpfully and said, I don't know, man, witches? Less than a week after Gross visited the Winters' home, shit in the Harper's house started catching fire all on its own. And as much as we all want to blame Morris's fat mouth, Playfair wondered if maybe poltergeists were contagious. After all, Gross had been in both houses, and weird shit was happening in his house now, too. Maybe he just carried it back with him? And that leads us to discussion question number four. Playfair brings up an interesting theory here. Actually, he brings up two. One, that the poltergeist got the fire idea from Morris. Two, that the activity somehow followed Gross from place to place. Based on what we've read so far, which are you feeling more confident about? What if is a little bit of one and a little bit of the other? That's entirely possible, actually. Because... Okay, Congressman. (laughs) Well, I, I think it's entirely possible that the poltergeist entity spirit thing got the idea from Morris because it seems to do that. You know, this isn't the first time. That, like, for example, like we were just talking about, Playfair was taunting it, and then it then it threw that shit, almost killed the kid, or could have killed the kid. Yeah, yeah. So, it's not not the first time that uh, that 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 the entity seemed to uh, react to what the adults were saying or doing. It took requests. Yeah, play Freebird. <laughs> God, um. But as for and the activity following gross from place to place, I'm not necessarily surprised by that. Hitchhiker effect, potentially. Um, also, gross having spent as much time in and around that, if this is psychic energy leaking, all, uh, leaking around, he probably got some too. Yeah. And it probably came with him. And one of the mediums they talked to at one point did say that gross was a repressed psychic. Yeah, I could see that. Um, especially coming off of the death of his, uh, of his, uh, his daughter, Janet. Yeah. I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if he had his own, if he was even adding to his presence being there was even adding to the one that was there just because he had so much, uh, un- dealt with traumas of his own. Playfair did indicate in the early chapters that when he first joined the investigation, shit would only happen when Gross was in the house, and when he was over, it would just be quiet until he left. Yeah. I mean, that didn't stay... It didn't stay that way, but... Yeah. For for sure. I... I, Not to... I'm not, you know, because I know... I think the last question has a little bit to do with their ultimate theories. So I won't go, I guess, too much into that. But I, I, I think a little bit, uh, I think for this, it's like a little, I think it could be a little bit of both. Because I think that, I think that whole area, like that whole house was like a collected fucking ball of psychic energy and it was uncontrolled and untethered to anything. So... Of course, it took responses from somebody who was feeding it. It took ideas from somebody who's feeding it, especially if it thought it was a good idea. You know? Yeah. I mean, personally, I, I, I agree with you. I, I also do like the idea of the poltergeist from the Winter's home 
followed him over, and that poltergeist started pulling shit, and then there was a whole poltergeist duel that happened yeah. in Invisible yeah. World. Uh, but so I do have a, I do agree with you, uh, Rory. I think those are the, those are uh, the most likely and strongest arguments. Um, I do have a cuckoo banana idea. Ah, I love cuckoo banana <laughs> ideas. Okay, so. This is a little esoteric. Okay, but there's this... Okay, so there's an idea that we've encountered sometimes, specifically in esoteric philosophy, of our reality kind of... Again, going back to uh, something we talk about often on the show, our reality is overlapping layers of consciousness. It is, uh, you know, basically it is a, is a world of mind. Um. And I started trying to think of that specifically from a humanities perspective. That's my background. So I was thinking about it in terms of narrative and story, because if you look at it, I mean, any of the books we've covered, it's a story. Fundamentally, this is an event that happened. It had a beginning, middle and end. And yes, it didn't follow the narrative structure of novels and movies, but because real life doesn't. But I, I would still I still looking at it through that lens. I could still see it as this kind of encapsulated uh, tale. And much like we were talking about with Jack Preston King's book, there's this idea of when you believe in the myth, the myth becomes true to you. And when yeah. you don't, so you're standing inside the myth, standing outside the myth. Well, what if Gross, by becoming so involved with this family, stepped into their story? It became a part of it. And hence, anything that he does is part of that story until the story ends, almost like it's a tableau or some sort of drama that must be played out. And he is now to a degree, playing a character within that role. He's playing himself, but his role within that story, you know, I don't know, I'm, try I'm trying to figure out how to get across what's a very confusing, esoteric idea I've been trying to chew on. No, I, I, I think I get what you're but, getting at, though. So, but the idea is then, when he went to the winner's house, because that's in his experience, that became part of the story. And because fire was happening there, it, I guess it, it transferred over narratively. Uh, into this other location, almost like, yes, it followed him, but it wasn't an entity following him. It was the concept that followed him, that mm -hmm. this is part of a poltergeist case. Like the editor was like, hey, you need to put more parallels between these houses. Almost. Yeah. I, I, even, even though I don't know if there is such a thing as an editor, but thinking you about know what I mean, yeah, no, speaking metaphorically, yeah, metaphorically. Yeah. Basically that his story was very contained on what's happening with the Jan with the Harper family. He goes to the winters and experiences something different there. Uh, that story now becomes part of the larger story of the Harpers. And so commonalities start popping up between them, which again is a super cuckoo bananas uh, because it assumes a lot but at at the same because ultimately we don't know what happened with the winters case we don't know how it ended we don't know what other activity they were seeing we only get a pretty brief glimpse of it in this book but i couldn't help but think that there was some sort of i don't know relationship that got formed because of gross but not necessarily an entity moving between them but almost like the energy necessary to create fire he went there picked it up and then came back intriguing uh, which I was kind of formulating as an idea or is an idea in a story sense. Like the idea for this event to happen came with him. I see what you mean. Okay. I, did I get there? Yeah. Cause I have been trying to figure out how to word that for fucking week now. I, I understand what, I understand what you're getting at. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Um, 
I'm personally going to give a, a relatively boring answer. I genuinely believe this started happening because Graham Morris opened his mouth in the in the Enfield house and said that this was happening. Like I based on the behavior of the entity so far, I genuinely believe that he just overheard it say him say that. It was just like, oh, that's an option? That's a thing I can do? Actually, yeah, what if it is an outside entity? It's not uh it's not the you know, poltergeists aren't at least this one wasn't psychic, just psychic energy. It was an outside intelligence, and it was completely unaware that that was an option until that got said. Th- that's what it felt like to me, because the way remember the way he said it is the only thing they don't got the only thing they've got that you don't is the fires implying which he's correct that anomalous fires are a thing that happens in severe poltergeist cases it just in genuinely especially because the fires never became like a constant thing that they were just around for a while and then they kind of stopped it felt experimental to me it felt like this thing going Again, if it's just like, wait a minute, can I do that? And it tried it for a while and being like, okay, I can do that. It's not producing the results that I want. And it maybe it takes a lot of energy. I don't know. And then it just moved on to the other shit that was working better. But particularly because it spiked for a while and then the fires kind of petered out, it, it, it felt like it felt like a superhero coming into their powers for the first time and being like, "What do you mean I can fly?" You know, it. It. I wish that uh, we could hop in a time machine and go conduct an experiment. I would be fascinated if you you try to repeat that by having somebody come into the house and talk about another case and some phenomenon that's happening there that's not happening at the Harper home, and then see if it pops up, and then do that again. But instead of you telling, say, the Harper family about this other phenomenon, you you go into the house when it's empty and you tell the poltergeist without Janet or Rose or or Peggy being there and see if the phenomenon then copies it. God, I would love to do that. I would do that for months like that. That would be fat. Well, because that that to me, it would be a, a ultimately. Well, we couldn't it wouldn't be definitive. It would be a test of personal agency. Is mm. there an outside agent acting in this situation or is it entirely basically this malformed psychic urge that's being given momentary sentience? Yeah. Yeah. That would be amazing. But yeah. sadly, we do not have a time machine. Yeah, only thing they've got that you don't is the diamonds randomly falling from the tap when you turn it on. <laughs> the only thing they've got that you don't is all the people who keep being miraculously cured of cancer and gonorrhea. Is it happening? Nope, I need to go to the clinic. <laughs> Mr. Morris, for the last time, stop trying to use our poltergeist to fix your STIs. It's a flawed premise. It is a mess down there. I've had to clap so many times they call it the applause. God. Mr. Morris, I don't want you near my kids anymore. <laughs> That's understandable. Get out of my house. Mr. Playfair, I swear to God, we need a, we need an interview process. I'm just, you bring these people here. We need witnesses, Peggy. You're not going to want to touch anything I touched. Okay, you know what? We're burning the house. Let's see what, <laughs> let's see what happens if we burn the house. Mr. Playfair, for God's sake, have some standards <laughs> on who you invite here. <laughs> Mr. For Playfair. For God's sake. <laughs> Mr. Playfair, why are there seven mimes in my kitchen? What's worse, me, the walking STI, 
or the magician who stood really creepily outside your daughter's bedroom and accosted her when she tried to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. They're both bad. Okay, yes, they're both bad. But All I'm saying is I didn't bring flash paper, just gonorrhea. You didn't bring flash paper. No, you brought your flesh paper. <laughs> uh, same texture. I, want... <laughs> I just wanted to have a nice Christmas. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, happy holidays. Oh my god. <laughs> Let's move on. We need to make a sign for the front door that says absolutely no magicians. <laughs> <laughs> you know, honestly, this show is bit by bit giving me a bias against magicians. It really is. Every time they show up in a book, they're fucking assholes. Yeah. <laughs> what? So if you are a magician out there and you're not an asshole, Write to us. I want to know that there are some good, honest magicians out there. This week on Midnight Chats, we talked to a non-shitty magician. You know what's like, funny? Ha- I have a coworker who is like uh, his, his family dabble in the, the, the magician fun, and he does himself. And I, I've never had a conversation about the paranormal with him yet, but I've overheard him talking about like aliens and stuff, and it's of the same mindset. Ah, that it's all uh, it's all illusion, or it either it's either it's either like none of the the woo shit. He's very like science about it, which I find really hysterical. But you know, whatever. All right, so we're ready to move on to the home stretch. I yep. am, or I'm just going to keep talking about gonorrhea. Please move on. We're due for another medium, aren't we? Playfair thinks we are. Getty Shurik was recommended to the team by some of the SPR colleagues. Remember how Peggy Harper banned them from her house and then they kept showing up there? Stand your ground, Peggy. I don't like these people either. Stand your ground with a 12-gauge shotgun. She's not allowed to have that. It's England. Playfair describes Getty as an exuberant man who had a knack for putting others at ease. At the Harper's house, Shurik told them that Janet was a medium, like herself, and that she and Rose were attracting these spirits to them with their natural gifts He also invoked a story of reincarnation, saying that the girls had been involved in witchcraft in the Middle Ages and that their mother had reincarnated into their family to stabilize them. In a deep trance, Shurik's spirit guide, a Native American named White Cloud, paused for loud sighing, spoke to the family. He began in hesitant bursts, much like Janet's voice in the first few sessions it spoke. White Cloud channeled the ghost of a cruel old woman, who did not know she was dead and appeared to be the culprit behind the fecal matter art. Like previous mediums, Shurik had a positive effect. He told the family that he'd conjured the ghost of a Welshman named Mr. Day to act as a doorman, keeping bad spirits away. The house was peaceful for some time after that. Rose in particular improved, calling on Mr. Day when she felt threatened, and her voice faded away. Janet had no such luck, and the activity centered on her returned in short order. In Chapter 16, the two most significant events we encounter is the follow-up story to the Daily Mirror and the results of a further analysis of Janet's phantom voice. This second Mirror story, in my guess, is where the popular misconception of the girls confessing to fraud comes from. For, you see, much like the earlier troop of rude SPR members, this group of men turned up to the house unannounced and barely acknowledged the family. One, Mr. Bentley, greeted them by declaring that he knew they were making it up. 
Another reporter involved spoke to Rose alone in the kitchen without clearing it with Peggy and allegedly obtained a confession from her. Playfair summarizes Rose's version of this conversation thusly. He was just saying things I didn't understand, she went on between sniffles. All those silly words. I was just daydreaming, thinking about what I need for school tomorrow. I wasn't listening to him at all, and I'm going like this, nodding. I had often noticed Rose do this. She had a way of giving the impression that she understood what you were saying, even when she clearly did not. I used to do that as a kid. At least I think I did. Yeah, no, I, I, I did it too. I um, definitely did, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I got very good at being able to use context clues in order to be able to use words and sentences where I didn't know their exact meaning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I knew like their approximate meaning, and so I could use them correctly enough that adults thought that I knew what they meant. And uh, yeah, that's also part of how I faked being able to read until I was eight or nine years old, and they went, hey, are you illiterate? And I'm like, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> you got me, officer. Take me to school. <laughs> <laughs> they actually took me to a tutor. <laughs> and oh, that was responsible. Yep. <laughs> Can you imagine if they'd arrested like eight, little eight-year-old Jay for faking literacy? I, it's like, I, what are you in for? Pretending to read. I don't know if they would have had handcuffs small enough. Given how big you are now, I must assume you grew up as a Keebler elf. <laughs> <sighs> Nick, I didn't break four feet tall until middle school. That is miraculous to me. Hey, baby, remember the first time we went to a Ren fair together and I was complaining that I'd ruined my uh, my Converse sneakers and I was like, I've had these sneakers since the eighth grade. Yes, that, I thought, it, uh, yes, the day haunts me. <laughs> you were like, why hasn't your shoe size changed since you were 13? And I was like, what do you mean your shoe size changed after you were 13? Yes, Rory, you're married to an adult, but you're married to an adult with child's feet, you sicko. I'm going to come over there, <laughs> and I'm going to rip that fucking beard off your face. Good luck. It's really on there. <laughs> you think I can't? That's hilarious. This nodding, this nodding, it seems, was the confession that this asshole got. He and the others never even spoke to Janet. They did, however, speak to Mrs. Nottingham next door in an attempt to get her to spy on her neighbors and obtain proof of their trickery. It should be noted that to this day, Janet Harper is reluctant to speak to the press about her childhood and the haunting, and maybe there's a fucking reason for that. These accusations of fraud get more irritating after Playfair reviews Dr. Haystead's results of the vocal analysis. It seems that the voice coming from Janet was not produced with her standard vocal cords, but with her false ones. False vocal cords are not used in typical speech, acting as auxiliary organs to protect the trachea. Producing sounds with these false chords is possible, but exceedingly difficult, and normally strains the voice to almost nothing after a minute or two. Please recall that the voice has spoken for hours at a time without affecting Janet's normal speaking voice. Don't those, like, monks that do the chanting with their false vocal cords spend almost their entire lifetime trying to do that, learn how to do that? Yes. yes. So so just for the uh, anyone who's keeping score at home... For the debunker's principal arguments to be true in this situation, Janet and Rose, without any training, are naturally expert ventriloquists, expert vocalists, 
expert illusionists, and I must presume wizards, literally wizards. Also, they're using anabolic steroids to lift furniture that they can't physically lift. The one time that the one investigator was in the same room as Janet, left the room, and then the bed was in front of the door, not letting him go back in. Like, have you seen pictures of that child? She could not move a bed. She was uh, okay. She yeah, was J sized. Yeah. Yeah. She was very. She was very small. She was very skinny and and like, like a twig. Yeah. Like she was. She was an. Yeah. She was an athlete at school. But I don't quote me on this because I don't remember. I don't think she. She obviously wasn't like a fucking weightlifter or wrestler. I think she was a track star, something well, like that. It, it's just. It's one of those situations where. The argument forwarded by skeptics, to me, is miles more unbelievable than simply there was an anomalous event here unknown to science. The primary points that the debunkers make, there's five that I see all the time in every article that I've ever read about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, it's that the, because the sisters said that they hoaxed some of it, that's one of the points that they make that the whole thing was a hoax. Uh, then they tried to debunk one of the photos saying it could have been a jump, not a levitation. Well, it wasn't actually uh, marketed as levitation. Other people did. That was a picture of her being thrown yeah. from mm-hmm. the bed. Um, the spirit of an old man, the spirit of the bill or whatever, being obsessed with menstruation, which I admit I was a little sus about that as well, but mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily surprised by all of this. Um, and then they just say, well, eyewitnesses are unreliable and that because other schoolgirl pranks before have gotten out of hand, this therefore must have gotten out of hand, which is essentially saying the same point as the first point, which is irrelevant at this point. Well, and yeah, I'm so, I'm so freaking tired of this. Eyewitnesses are irrelevant thing. Dude, it's seriously well, it, well, here's fucking the th- irritating. Here's the thing: is that it's such a fault. It's such a disingenuous argument because if there are witnesses to fraud, those are completely accepted. Right. But if there's witnesses to the contrary, they're not. And it, again, it goes back to they fundamentally do not want to live in a world where that phenomenon can happen, and so they'll take any kind of mental gymnastics they need to do in order to get to there, until they get to the point that they can feel safe going to bed at night. Correct. And, well, I understand that, and I appreciate everyone has a right to feel safe in their homes. You don't have a right to call a child a liar. You don't have a right to drag their names through the mud because it makes you uncomfortable. Right. No, exactly. Uh, And, uh, I don't know, it, it, it annoys me. And also, it comes from this assumption that, well... Uh, if you're not lying and you didn't fake it, then you didn't know what you saw and you're a moron. It's like, it is the most uh, condescending of arguments that I see coming, basically coming from the base of assuming fraud. It, yep. Eventually, you will get to, this person is a liar, they are, uh, they're either a liar or an idiot. And those yep. are the only options. There is no other possibility considered because they can't live in that world. Yep. Yep. These poor fucking kids. Yeah, no, these the, the the Harper kids. I felt so bad for them. Yeah, especially same. here. They the adults coming in who they are under the belief are here to help immediately begin accosting them. Yeah. In chapter seventeen, we find the Burke Holmes, Peggy's birth family. For those of you having trouble keeping track. And the Nottinghams, both beset by poltergeist activity, even when far from the Harper house. Inside the Harper house, apparitions grew more frequent, even including a small child who strongly resembled littlest brother Jimmy, 
Peggy and her brother John thought it might have been a sibling of theirs who died in childhood. On May 30th of 1978, the poltergeist put on another public display. While the Harper children stood in the backyard arguing over the fence with a group of neighbor siblings, another blitz of tiny projectiles began. Rocks, lumps of dirt, milk bottles, and even bricks began flying in every direction, seemingly coming from nowhere and landing in the yards of five different houses. This was witnessed by most of the block as they came running in and out of each other's homes trying to figure out what was going on. It continued even after the Harper children were brought inside their house and the kids they'd been arguing with swore up and down that the projectiles could not possibly have come from them anyway. But they remember, they were master magician illusionists and ventriloquists and vocalists. No, they're not. They're Janet, Rose, and Jimmy, and we've known them since we were fetuses, and no, they're not. Uh, but did you, did you know that they were training in the fetus? Are okay. in the womb. Okay, I know, <laughs> I I'm, know, a sm- I know I'm a small English child, but I'm going to kill you. Yeah, okay. I'm going to end your... Okay, you're accepting of this. That's I, good. Yeah, I mean, I, I got debt. <laughs> in chapter 18, we see Janet removed from the house again, this time all on her own. Peggy Harper was getting worn out, fearing that the only solution was permanent separation of her children. And after nine months of assault, Janet herself was at a breaking point. Her mother feared that she was possessed, and Playfair quietly feared the same thing. So Janet was taken from 85 Wood Lane and brought to a home run by Catholic nuns to watch over her for a time. She rather enjoyed this, what with being fascinated by religion, and the activity was much, much more manageable in the nunnery. And on July 25th, all paperwork and arrangement and delays were settled, and Janet was admitted to the Maudsley Hospital Psychiatric Ward to be examined by Dr. Fenwick, one of the only sympathetic psychologists they'd met to date. Back at the house, the activity slowed but didn't stop. John Burkholm experienced over an hour of time loss, an incident that feels eerily similar to a UFO encounter, God fucking damn it, every fucking time, and witnessed a solid-looking, fully materialized apparition sitting at the kitchen table. The usual BS of thrown furniture and knocking and cold drafts kept up as well. Rosalind Morris, God, remember her? And Playfair visited Janet Maudsley and found her in high spirits. She liked her doctors, got along great with the other patients, and unlike the nun's home, it had basically no activity there during her stay. Playfair and Morris took this rare opportunity of having Janet to themselves and questioned her about why she felt like the activity decreased during this separation. Janet told them that she felt the activity at home could be traced to her, Rose, and their mom sleeping in the same room. The energy built up too high, she explained, but here that can't happen. In Chapter 19, it seems that the poltergeist was trying to select new targets. Young Jimmy had an episode much like Janet's dream trances, and for the first time ever, the voice spoke through him. Does Jimmy know the secret false vocal cord talking to various dicks? Does the whole family secretly take night classes entitled How to Win Fame and Trick People? Jimmy is fucking 11. I'm okay. I'm okay. Pete, visiting from his boarding school, also fainted for literally no reason, and Playfair was terrified that the poltergeist was sick of the girls and was starting in on their brothers. Janet was released from Maudsley with sane but adorable stamped onto her forehead. Home less than half an hour, and she began seeing apparitions. 
However, the rest and support she received at Maudsley did something. The activity was noticeably less intense and became more of a nuisance than rather than something life-threatening. Which makes it the perfect time for another medium. This one is Dutch. <laughs> another medium. The Dutch edition. <laughs> <laughs> Dutch medium. Da-da-da-da-da. Cancelled after three episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm about to butcher a name. Everyone forgive me. Dono Gemlig Mailing arrived in October of 1978, intending to spend at least a week working with the family. His visits were not showy or complicated. Mostly, he inspected the house, talked to Janet, and gave the family a few gifts. He told Playfair that he intended to cure the people in the house in order to stop the poltergeist. Apparently, the house was full of tension, which was slowly easing, and the tension was largely to blame for what was happening. You think? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I sense this house is full of tension, and Playfair just punches him in the mouth. <laughs> yeah. On Christmas, <laughs> the sheets tried to strangle my daughter four times. Janet, is that true? No, it's not. They actually tried to strangle me seven times, but I feel like Mom had had enough. I blocked out the last, out last three. Oh, dear God. <laughs> Another interesting thing to note is that during Mei Ling's astral journeys to investigate the house, he encountered the ghost of a 24-year-old woman whom he believed to be Janet Gross, Maurice's daughter. Maurice himself thought this was a strong possibility. For quite a while, he'd suspected his late daughter, a journalist herself, was guiding him here to help this family. As often happens in these cases, the activity ended not with a bang, but with a whimper. It continued to lull and flare on and off for months, but by 1979, it seemed to have petered out for good. No more spoon bending, shit smearing, or kid throwing. No more apparitions floating around like they paid rent. No more missing objects, and no more abusive voice. As always, we're left with no answers. Which brings us to discussion question number five. We did it. Yay! Playfair and Gross propose two sort of opposing theories here. Playfair favors the idea that certain people draw spirits or ghosts to them and that these confused, angry, or traumatized entity exploit the damaged human's energy for their own goals. Gross, on the other hand, seems to feel that poltergeist activity comes entirely from the inside— some sort of uncharted power that comes out in times of stress and is capable of amazing feats. Considering this book and similar cases, which of these theories do you lean towards? Okay, so uh, going into this book, like we were talking about earlier, uh, when I mentioned having to reassess, uh, constantly reassess our assumptions about the phenomenon, um, I definitely came into this book thinking, you know, what I'm sure many of our listeners think, that poltergeists most likely are manifestations of latent psychic ability that somehow gets out of the body and starts manifesting around uh, during periods of high tension. Sure, I could buy that. I think this story actually, though, pushed me hard, uh, not hard, pushed me a little away from that and towards entertaining that there might be other entities involved. I quite like uh, Playfair's model, this idea that there are entities about, but they can't usually do anything. We have to give them the fuel to do it. And people in these situations, they're just leaking the stuff, whatever that psychic juice is. Um, I, I did also wonder... If it's a little of if they're both right in that 
there is other entities. But going back to uh, a lot of what we've read in uh, esoteric philosophy and UFO literature, there's that idea of oneness, right? All is one. We're all part of the same God brain of consciousness, blah, blah, blah. Well, <laughs> if that's the case, that it's entirely possible that, yes, the poltergeist is a creation of psychic energy, but that does not mean it's not now a distinct entity of itself. It is another aggregate of consciousness, like it, almost like a, another cell that split off from the mode of consciousness that was uh, the members of the Harper family. And so it could be a little of both, that yes, it is created, but that doesn't mean it's not an entity with its own agency. Because that's the big thing I can't get away from, is it, I constantly kept seeing signs of what seemed to be a personal separate agency separate from the girls. Uh, specifically because activity did happen, for example, to John Burke home when he was in the Harper home when no one else was there. There was no one to feed upon. So there had to be something there uh, that was already, you know, full up off of feeding off the kids when they were there that then used that energy for the manifestations that he saw. Unless, of course, he was yet another power source but I think at that point we're starting to ask, okay, well, who's not at this point? Like, who who doesn't have some trauma that's causing you to leak some tasty ghost juice? But uh, yeah, no, I I, th I we ob obviously we don't know, but uh, I I quite like Playfair's idea, and I, I like this idea that uh, sometimes we can make ghosts, and that doesn't make them really any different from a ghost we didn't make. They're they're still another discarnate entity. Fair. So, like, between these two? Yeah. Or if you have your own theory. Either one. Well, I kind of spitballed my own theory already, so I won't redo that, I guess. I think I tend to side more with Gross here. Yeah? Because I think, at least in the case of, like, a lot of these, it feels so much like there is an interact, like, there's some, there's some kind of interaction internally that's happening because so much of it is reflected or reflective of themselves. Uh, like the whole uh, menstruation thing, of course that, that character, that entity is interested in, is seemingly obsessed with this thing that she is probably very confused by. Yeah. So of course that's there. I think, so I, I think there's a lot to suggest that there's something happening internally. Thinking about Alma Fielding, I would argue that that was almost entirely internal with her. Yeah. Um, and I think this one, in, in this case here, I, I think m more, to me, I think there's more evidence that lends to it being some kind of manifestation from all of the trauma from everybody that or trauma and stress and, and that of everybody involved from gross to the Harpers. Yeah. And Playfair because he went into this exhausted. Yeah, he was he was exhausted and also like he he was clearly traumatized by some of the shit he'd seen in Brazil because mm -hmm. some of those cases ended, one of those cases ended in the victim taking their own life. Yeah. And even if you don't know the person super well, ha having someone you know die of suicide is so deeply traumatic that it's like that probably, that, yeah, that had clearly very much fucked him up, and it was clearly informing how he was approaching a lot of the stuff he was doing with Janet. 
You know, adrenaline makes uh, makes people do crazy things, right? Yeah. So does fear. Yeah. So does, you know, uh, tons of different emotions. So how is, I, I guess I don't see it as a, as a, that much further of a stretch that there can be some sort of manifestation of psychic energy that maybe even has some biological element to it that we don't know. Uh, happening when the people are unaware uh, unaware or they're in these times of crisis or whatever. Now, all of this being said, I also think Playfair's idea has merit to it um, because I, there, I definitely think that there are people that have spirits and ghosts and, and other entities drawn to them and not necessarily from any negative or bad emotion or any kind of confusion. I think that that is just something that happens to some people. Yeah. You know, I, that there's some like, uh, that, that that's probably how a lot of mediums find out that they're mediums. Yeah. You know, they start seeing ghosts everywhere, spirits everywhere. Well, most of the mediums in this, pretty much all the mediums in this book had specific spirits that were attached to them as teachers and guides. Yeah, and that's not uncommon for for mediums at all. My my favorite uh, my favorite one was when uh, Playfair's recorder went missing. The time it wasn't Janet hiding it, and there was a medium staying at the house. And he asked him, "It's like, hey, can you ask your your spirit guide Thomas Penn to find my tape recorder?" And the medium was like, "Thomas Penn is from over two hundred years ago, guy. He doesn't know what a tape recorder is." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I I loved that. That was so I'm just picturing this medium asking this old this old 17th century doctor for help and the guy just stares at him blankly if it's just like I don't know what you're asking me for. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess between the two I think I lean more towards gross in terms of like general act like general poltergeistiness, but I all but I think Playfair has is I think his theory has merit to it in general. Yeah. Can, you know? Can I forward a third hypothesis from another person we've read on the show? Of course. What if Keel is right? I, I mean, looking at this, we see a lot of the trickster element on display in poltergeist Absolutely. cases, especially yeah. here in Enfield. Right you get down this to the I- fires. Yeah, you yep. get this idea. Like, I could almost, right down to the shit on the like, walls. Uh-huh. What if there is no ghost? What if there is no real psychic ability? It is just an ultra-terrestrial uh, fucking with them because yeah. it can. Yeah. Or or maybe it's trying to get Janet to awaken to her psychic powers or something. But the fact that the trickster elements and the conf- the circus around how what it did and how it did it, it, it really, really reminded me of some of the, the stranger stuff in UFO literature. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Uh, and so you know, I, I do wonder if this is all a put on that all of our theories about this we can't come to a conclusion because ultimately all the ideas that we have about it are only based off what it's allowed us to see. Yeah, those goddamn ultra-terrestrials. It's a goblin. (laughs) (laughs) There's a goblin in their house. God damn it. (laughs) So for my my personal stance on this, I, I tend to think of hauntings and poltergeist infestations as two completely separate things. And by and large, I, even to this point, still largely ascribe to the theory of hauntings are disincarnate spirits that were 
alive at some point and are now causing trouble for various reasons that are often not quite clear to us. Poltergeists are externalized psychic distress that is causing problems for reasons that aren't entirely quite clear to us. I think in Enfield, we had both. I think this was a poltergeist case that was also a haunting, just because it's displaying a lot of features of both. And I do believe Playfair, parts of Playfair's interpretation, I think the ghosts were somehow feeding off of the poltergeist activity. Maybe that's a thing most ghosts can do. But I... And I don't know, I don't know who the specific haunting was. I think there is a possibility because Playfair at one point floats the idea that the number of spirits in the house could be blamed on the fact that uh, the kids liked to go hang out in the graveyard. And if the kids were naturally psychic and Janet's a natural medium, she might have just been carrying shit back to the house with her. But... To, to me, when because I I was seeing similarities to Alma Fielding, definitely. I was also seeing a lot of similarities to Demon of Brownsville Road, right down to the weird puddles of water. And remember how after a while in Enfield, those puddles of water turned into cat urine, and in Brownsville Road, it was puddles of amniotic fluid. That shit to me seems more like haunting shit. Well, especially. Because Janet Gross seems to have left that water puddle sign for her dad. Yep. That's haunting shit. But the furniture moving around and the knocking, that's poltergeist shit. Hauntings tend to end with some sort of banishment or exorcism or resolution of the spirit's issues. Poltergeist activities just peter out. Hmm. So, yeah, I I genuinely believe that part of the reason why Enfield is such a fucked up, memorable case is I do think this may have been a rare instance of there being a poltergeist um, infestation in an actively haunted house. Mm, Yeah, I could see that. Ghost Spring Break, 1978. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, again, that would explain some of the shit of, like, the fact that for a while it felt like it was experimenting of like that some of the experimentation could have been from ghosts and some of the standard shit that would that went on unchanged for the entire time could have been the poltergeists. I mean, it's also possible that there was some of what we were seeing, like the the activity we were seeing was really only half of the picture, like listening only to one half of a, a phone call. What if there was <laughs> some form of conflict happening in that house between ghosts? That was yeah. causing some of the activity that was going on. Like I, you know, I threw, I threw Tim through a table, and the and in the physical world, that table flipped over. Yeah, it was absolute. Like all the oh. random shit like that was just the ghosts fighting. Yeah. yeah, it was just it was just a goddamn brawl for just two years straight. Fucking battle royal in the Enfield house. Uh, it's it, it maybe, and maybe that's why the family kept getting so stressed out. Maybe that's why Janet and Rose kept freaking out in their sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would freak out too if every time I went to sleep I accidentally astraled in, into the middle of ballroom blitz. Well, yeah, al- yeah. Also, for a while, whenever Janet was going into her trances, she started hitting people. So yeah, <laughs> that could make sense. So maybe someone was like, "I'm gonna go get a fucking mech suit. I'm done with this." Can you imagine like you're a medium and you go to sleep and you pop out of your body and astral directly into the octagon, like uh-huh. facing off against like a seven foot tall ghost who's just fucking jacked. 
wake up. Wake up, wake up, wake up. <laughs> I'm just standing there and it's just like, oh God, can I can I remember anything from when I was in martial arts? I can't because I'm panicking and asleep. Okay, great. great. I thought in the dream I was in control. Time to get my ass kicked. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. Every guy should get his ass kicked at least once in his life. I'm pretty sure it's good for us. You know... I'm just going to let it go. You know, I've had, I've had my ass kicked a couple times, and I'm not sure it ever made me better. Um, I actually would argue it made me worse. Okay. Statement <laughs> retracted. No, here's the thing, though. I do believe some people need to get their ass kicked. And I think maybe that's what I'm referring to, but you have to understand, I am an immigrant to masculinity. <laughs> Goddamn immigrants taking all our testosterone. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> All right. So, are we I, done here? I think we're I think we're done here. This house is clear. So it's time for about the authors. About the authors. So if you listen to our episode on twin telepathy, a lot of this is going to be uh, familiar to you. Guy Leon Playfair was born on April fifth, nineteen thirty-five, in Keita, British India. He was the son of a British army officer and novelist, Jocelyn Malin. He was educated at the University of Cambridge and afterwards served as a translator for the Royal Air Force in Iraq. After that, he pursued a career in journalism, working for Life magazine, until he moved to Rio de Janeiro in the 1960s to pursue freelance journalism. It was in Brazil that he met a psychic healer and later investigated a poltergeist case in an apartment in San Paulo, creating in him an intense fascination with the paranormal. He joined the SPR in the same year. His most famous case is obviously the Enfield haunting, and... Quick note, he hated The Conjuring 2, as it played up the involvement of the Warrens, whom he claims did not really investigate the case in any depth and, in fact, did not even appear in this book, Yep, and excluded him entirely. Yeah, I mean, they, they didn't show up until 1978, so... Yeah, when the activity was dying. Yeah. He wrote a number of other books about anomalous phenomenon, many of which are now out of print and incredibly difficult to purchase. However, they are worth a read. We have The Flying Cow, a book of Brazilian paranormal stories, The Indefinite Boundary, The Geller Effect, which he co-wrote with Uri Geller, Chico Xavier, Medium of the Century, a book detailing his investigation of a well-known Brazilian medium, Medicine, Mind, and Magic, The Cycles of Heaven, co-written with Scott Hill, The Unknown Power, New Clothes for Old Souls, Worldwide Evidence for Reincarnation, The Haunted Pub Guide, If This Be Magic, Evil Eye, The Unacceptable Face of Television, as well as several other books. He also conducted experiments into psychokinesis, telepathy, and more. He appeared as himself in a docu-series about the Enfield case, as well as consulting on many documentaries about the paranormal, and he was active in his research until his death on April 8, 2018, at the age of 83. The same day, the BBC aired a reunion of the people involved in the Enfield case. That's it. Yay. And that's it. All right. So are we ready for housekeeping? We are. Housekeeping. Rest, rest in peace, Playfair. Yes, yeah, indeed. I, I was really sad when I found out. He, there's a, a frequent thing on the show where, because obviously we try to reach out to all the authors we cover. Yeah. And it is always a little sad whenever I try to re, I try to look into them. I'm like, oh, they're dead. Like, I cannot. <laughs> there is no one to reach out to unless we get a Ouija board, and that does not make for good radio. Yeah, and we were, we were, I remember we were preparing for the twin telepathy episode. You were asking me about what I thought the possibility was of getting Playfair on the show. And I knew Playfair was dead. And so I was just kind of looking at you like, oh, 
Oh, he doesn't know. He doesn't know this guy's been dead for three years. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, this is what I get for living under a rock. I don't, I don't know what's going on. Do you live under a roof? It's quite a nice roof. You are exhausting. Yes, I am. <laughs> but anyway, housekeeping. So if you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe on whatever podcasting platform it is that you are listening on. And if it's Apple or Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. Or an any star review, but five stars is obviously preferred. And if you do want to reach out to us for whatever means, you want to give us a book suggestion, you want to tell us about how amazing our show is, you can do that by emailing us at noctivianpodcast at gmail.com and or reaching out to us on social media on Twitter at noctivianpod or I am at Mix Rory Wicks. I am at Bearish Terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And then we have a plethora of other social medias, including Instagram, Noctivian underscore podcast. We have a Reddit account, Noctivian Podcast. We have a Tumblr account, Noctivian Podcast. And I think that is it. So what is up next? Uh, the next, we're going to be reading The Druid's Way by Philip Carr Gome. Yes, I indeed. think that's how you pronounce his name. I think you're right. It's, a, it's an interesting little book. Uh, it is detailing one man's solo pilgrimage across southern England as he attempts to reconnect with the Druidic faith of old by basically walking one of the ancient trackways that was used by the Druids. Yep, and Philip Cargome is one of the founders of the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids, which is the order that I study Druidry through. And funny enough, I didn't know that when I picked the book. I And already, I have questions. I have many, many questions about how we're supposed to read the book. Yeah. I'm sure we'll get into that on the episode. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I mean, I have no idea what we're getting ourselves into because I haven't started reading it yet. I'm about halfway through. It's a trip. The man reads crazy fast, listeners. Yeah. I, yeah. It's almost like it's been my primary hobby and outlet for 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, anything else? Any last thoughts? Any final words? Any general swearing? I... Someday we're going to have to do a book by one of the skeptics to make sure that their, argu- that their arguments aren't being misrepresented because there's a part of me that thinks there is no way they're that disingenuous and stupid. Uh, like the, specifically in the Enfield case. I, I don't disagree with you, but also like I, I was looking up some of the uh, like the, the way that they debunked it. And what I read, what I read was from the wiki specifically but I saw those exact same points laid out in multiple articles. Yeah, it's it's this within the paranormal world, the section of it that is focused on ghosts, demonic possessions and poltergeist infestations. This is referred to as the least debunked haunting in the history of the Western world, because all of the debunkment arguments are considered so unbelievably weak that they hold very little water to the point where a lot of people in the skeptic crowd, even if they don't believe the Enfield haunting was genuine, are like, I don't know how they faked it. I don't know what happened over there because the explanations that have been put forth don't make sense. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I uh, I enjoyed this book. People should go out and read it. There's a ton of information here we didn't get a good chance to get to. Yes. And some of the stuff about uh, the sound waves produced by the knocks and the voice as opposed to like a normal knock or a normal voice. It's they're different things. Yeah. You also get to see a lot of the pictures that were taken of some of the shit that was happening in the Enfield house. They're quite they're quite interesting and 
yeah, when you actually read the book, you spend a lot more time with the kids and with Peggy Harper, and they're just, in my opinion, at least, they're a very charming, lovable family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, they are. They didn't deserve anything that happened to them, either supernatural or mundane. Agreed. But all right, if nothing else, Jay, lead us out of here. Good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe out there on those midnight roads. Don't get lost. Imagine if at Maudsley Hospital they had just put her into an MRI machine and just like inside of her brain it was just a swirling vortex to the ghost zone.